So Glenn That's Fleischman, right. welcome to the talk show. Thanks for having me on. All right, so let's just run down the balls you've got <laughs> in the air. So you're, I think, and I think this is new since the last time you were on this, this show, is that I think that you're now the uh, owner, publisher, editor, or not editor, I'm not sure about that, of the, the magazine. I'm everything. I'm the bottle washer. Um, yeah, I think I was on just before Marco and I did the deal, or a few months before, or was it even longer than that? Oh, oh, no, it was actually, I think after I came on as editor, um, yeah, when Marco sold everything except his dog and children, <laughs> child, in, in May and June, it was a very funny time. But right. yeah, it's uh, it was a logical thing. I mean, it's, I love doing this, and uh, and uh, Marco's a programmer, and the cycle is really different between being a programmer and a publisher, and I think the timing was great when he was ready to move on with his uh, new endeavor, his Stu No right. Longer Secret podcast thing. All right. The time but anyway, great. you're running an entire magazine, a, a weekly magazine. No, bi-weekly. That's correct. Fortnightly, every two weeks. Isn't, isn't bi-weekly one of those words that can mean two different things? Yeah, it's like, can you, quick, annual, perennial, which means every year, and which means uh, they, only once. No, they both mean every year. No, an, an annual plant, well, I think it's the plant, annual uh, in plants, I guess is the thing, is it only comes out once, and a perennial will bloom again every year. I don't get it. It's 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 language. Language is a problem. Yeah, bi-weekly used to mean, now sometimes people no, say bi-monthly. semi-weekly. Isn't bi-monthly? Bi-monthly can mean twice a month or every two months. The language has evolved to where most people will say semi-monthly or twice a month, to, and then bi-monthly means every other month. But it's, uh, yeah, it's becoming, in periodicals, it's becoming more common because publications are reducing their frequency. New York Magazine is going to every other week now, for instance, after many, many years of being weekly. Right, I saw that. It's interesting. Um, just read, a, it's off, the, off topic, I have a whole bunch of on-topic stuff for this show, <laughs> but... Um, there was a, they have a great article. I don't think I've, yeah, I have not yet linked it from Daring Fireball, but by the time the show comes out, I will have um, a cover story on the new issue of New York Magazine about Alex Rodriguez, the New York Yankees embattled superstar. And it's one of the finest pieces of journalism that I've read in a long time because there's this whole thing where he's been accused of using performance enhancing drugs and he was issued a 211 game suspension. Uh, and he's fought it, and nobody really knows what the hell is going on. And this article, and I follow it as a, as a Yankees fan. I've been following the saga, uh, you know, pretty uh, avidly, I guess I would say, you know, all year long. And uh, still had no idea. Like, to me, it, was, it still has never been clear just what evidence they had against him. They must have had something, blah, blah, blah. This article makes the whole thing clear, and he really uh, – it's really – Journalism at its finest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Journalism is a problem because the best kind of journalism that we think we like the most, that we like, sticks with us, and you may go back and read, or it turns into a book, or it changes the law, or whatever. That stuff is so ridiculously unprofitable. It costs so much money to do that entire news organizations are devoted to making enough money to afford to be able to do that sort of journalism. 
Yeah. Because it, it just caught, I mean, the Seattle Times, I always cite them because they're a family-run paper. The family is really weird, and they've made some really terrible business decisions, but it's still 51% owned by the family that bought it in the 1800s. And they will do things like spend $2 million for a two-year investigation into the Washington State courts sealing documents inappropriately and cause massive positive political social change. They did not make $2 million off that, right? I mean, everything else they did subsidized that $2 million so that could happen. And they have to actually believe in their mission enough and believe that it gives them an aura enough that keeps subscribers or brings subscribers in that it was worth it. And, uh, and that's a hard, that's a hard sell. Yeah. And just, you know, this article I'm talking about just titled chasing a rod. Uh, and it is written by, hold on. I've got to go back to page one. Goddamn pagination, uh, <laughs> which I want to get into Steve Fishman, who wrote this cover story. Related to me, of course. No, no, and sorry. No, and sorry. It, it was a monumental effort. It really is. You know, and the best of feature-length magazine writing is, is much closer to, in scope to book writing than to, you know, article writing. It's closer yeah. to a miniature book than it is to what, you know, to me, an article is somewhere around a thousand words. Mm-hmm. And once you get past that, you know, you're somehow you're taking on something that needs a lot more nurturing work. But um, now this is a guy who's he traveled to Miami. That's where Alex Rodriguez lives. And, you know, part, big part of, you know, the reason this article is so interesting is that it's the he's the first journalist who who Alex Rodriguez had uh, opened up to. Uh, and so he traveled to Miami and hung out with him and and was there. He spent time in New York in the 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 uh, not a trial but a, a, a arbitration hearing with major league baseball uh you know that's that's putting your ass in the seat in a room where there you know it, it, those things anybody who's ever been in a courtroom if you've ever done you know jury duty or even just gotten out of jury duty you know that all those things they go slowly it's days you know of just waiting for what you know a couple of paragraphs uh and in the meantime you know the guy's a writer bills have to be paid you know, so you it's it takes money to gather just to gather the the reporting, let alone the time it takes to write the actual article. Yeah, I remember reading a Neil Stevenson wrote a piece for Wired years ago where he traced fiber optic cable around the world, and I read it and I thought, a, this is I mean he's still you know top of his top of his career, but this is when he was really on the peak, so he's getting massive amounts of advances and selling millions of books, and and I thought, a, how much money do they have to pay him for a fee? But B, reading all the places he went, I'm thinking he had like a $75,000 expense budget e e traveling coach, you know, right. staying in two-star hotels because of the 50 places he went and just the sheer amount of time. It's astonishing the amount. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He's a thousand words. You could talk to someone on the phone and write a thousand words in a you know 20-minute conversation, 10-minute conversation and write about one thing. But when you get beyond that, you have to start to shape a narrative and you have to start doing research. You have to have things that go beyond, you know, the obvious or a few quotations, because otherwise, like, what are you writing about for that long? There's not enough to say. I mean, you know, people write philosophical essays that are longer, but if you're writing about news and real things, then, you know. Yeah. And so that's, I still feel, and I feel like it, it's a good topic to talk to you about is, is where does the money for this type of work continue to come from as we move forward in, <laughs> into a BuzzFeed driven world? You That's know. what I'm asking. Where does it come from? Um, it's, you know, and you know, I don't even know where to start. But with uh, 
just stuff in the last week, you know, that uh, where where uh, over Thanksgiving, did you, you follow? You had to follow this this Elon Gale saga. Oh yeah, that was yeah, and I I felt very bad for my bad about myself. At first, I thought it was hilarious, and I thought. Oh no! Wait, the guy's a dick. And then I thought, no, this can't even be true. You know, went through through regret. Um, for, for anybody who missed it, Elon Gale, who I never heard of before, but he's apparently the, yeah. the producer, executive producer of a bunch of really shitty re- reality shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and something else. And over Thanksgiving, I guess on the day, he he tweeted a series of tweets, ostensibly live from the uh, a Wi-Fi equipped plane, about a terrible woman. A few rows ahead of him, who was you know uh, berating the the crew because their flight was delayed, and and this woman you know and it ends up and then he sent her notes and uh, drinks and 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 got really rude with her and that was the part there, there's two weird parts to it like the weirdest part is that it ends up the whole thing was fake he made the whole thing up. But a lot of you know, but it was all presented as being true. And even yeah. on Twitter, when people said, "Hey, is this fake?" and he, you know, denied it. Um. But the other thing too was that it, it even if it was true, yeah, like you said, at first, at first, and it 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 it, it, it was like a slow boiling frog where his behavior to the woman at first, <laughs> if it were true, was kind of funny. But then when he started sending notes to her that that said, "Eat my dick," uh you know, it's that's over the line. I mean, that's actually you know like a really creepy thing to do. If, if even if it were true, I mean, that's that's you know sort that, of yeah. I mean, that kind of thing could get you arrested. Everyone right. in the situation could get arrested, and and then she allegedly he said she slapped him, and nothing happened. The police weren't called, and you know it was it was a weird story. Well, it started. Out, I mean, it's it, you know this is that he, he was channeling that um, that. Rage we all have now because the airlines pack us in and it's all the flying experience is horrible and all the fl- planes are full and everything is bad about flying. And he did a great job tapping into that um, that feeling where we see like uh, we feel like we are surrounded by horrible people, even if they're perfectly nice in other circumstances. Everyone is pushed to the limit, and he's like, "All right, you know." So I'm taking action. It's like, "All right, that's great." And then it's like, "Oh, but you're you're a dick. You're but being the, a dick." It's like, oh. The thing is, is it turned into a sensation. I mean, and you know, a, a multi-million page view sensation mm-hmm. on sites like BuzzFeed, and I don't know if the Huffington Post picked it up, but I know BuzzFeed did, and probably did as much as anybody to to drive it as a, a uh, I hate to say this, viral meme. I don't know or story. But here's the thing: it it was even if it were true, it is kind of bullshit to be the biggest story of the day, and it ends up the whole thing was a hoax and was rather easily verified as a hoax, or at least, you know, nobody did any work to actually see if it were true. Uh, and yet, that it, it, everything has continued to devolve, even though everybody knows that page views are so problematic as a measure of advertising in so many ways. The the publishing world has continued to even knowing how poisonous this whole model is has continued to devolve in that direction, and I can't think of it's 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 as good an example as anything. Yeah, I mean, look, here's the example of where we're at: is that Business Insider running? Um, you know, they got all kinds of opinions about them, of course, and how they 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 fight uh, they they uh, follow page views. The the bit that one of their editors wrote about his rebooked trip to China where it was paid for by 
the Chinese airline, that whole crazy story. That got like million, 1.5 million page views or something. A story about how he was traveling in the lap of luxury and he took a bunch of pictures. And uh, Henry Blodgett's awful thing about being cramped in, I don't know, American Airlines flight last year or whatever that was, that got hundreds of thousands of views. So they, they figured out how to tap people's sort of purient or I don't know what it is like it's lolcat interest and turn it into massive traffic and then they sell that massive traffic at an incredibly incredibly low rate so they have to have billions of views to make any kind of real money in any case but right. but they're finding people who will come and read the stuff so there is an audience for it and uh, there's no chance <laughs> that that sort of crap is going to go away and i'm not even saying it should i mean and then you know and in some sense you know like this elon gale guy his professional career is an example of that you know where where <laughs> yes we have to remember how classy he is in his day job too right but it really does show you i mean and and if you watch or even just tune in you know halfway through any random episode of one of these reality shows uh with a critical eye it it you can really see just how the whole thing it, you know it really the the word reality needs dick quotes around it because mm -hmm. it's it it how could it be you know like where these regular characters enter a room and somebody who they're you know ostensibly meeting documentary style you know in in for real is already wearing a, la a lav mic you know it's like it it's almost like how can you possibly believe that this is real if they're if the people they're meeting you know in a restaurant or something have already been miked? Oh, I saw that the other day. Someone was mentioning that like if you see if if a random person that someone meets in a reality show is already miked for sound, it's not a random person. Like oh well, yes, but you don't. Yeah, I think we must have tell. seen the same tweet, right? You don't think the yeah. tell. It's a good tell. That was the same thing with the Elon situation. As someone pointed out a couple of days afterwards, said. The picture where he posted the note with the glass of wine, he couldn't have taken that because that would have meant that he had gotten up and was standing next to her taking the photo before she – whatever. There's no way that would have worked. Like no. he – it doesn't make any sense. It's like, oh, you're right. It was internally inconsistent. Nick uh, Bilton at the New York Times was actually looking at flight schedules and so forth and correlating them with tweets and decided it was nonsense just based on, on that. It cracked me up. That's funny. Yeah. I thought it was my first – I don't know. Something set me off on it right away. And my first thing was that – and maybe it's my ears. I, I don't know. Like I've said this before in the show. I worry a little bit and it runs in my family that, that hearing loss in the men in the in the Gruber family is, is sort of a problem. <laughs> uh, so maybe it's just me. But I have trouble – like when, when we sit uh, – like if my family travels and – Amy and I both take aisle seats, and maybe Jonas sits in the middle next to Amy. I have trouble hearing Amy across the aisle. Like, oh, if, yeah, yeah. you know, like if I'm 7C and she's 7D, I, I have trouble hearing her on this ship because, you know, or on the plane because she doesn't want to talk real loud, you know. And he said she was, I don't know, five rows ahead of her, three or four rows ahead of her. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really hard to overhear somebody, even if somebody was really you know sort of being abusive toward the the flight crew uh if she's sitting five rows ahead of you it's really pretty hard plus the whole thing like it was repeated endlessly over and over and over again that she was diane in 7a well 7a is a window seat so yeah. all this note passing nonsense it, it's a little bit more possible if it's like a 747 with a 242 you know with two aisles because then, mm -hmm. then you know, I guess he could only have to reach over one person, seven B. 
But most planes on domestic flights are not 747s. They're, you know, they're, they're, uh, forget the numbers. They're, they're not narrow body, what are they call them? They're, ma- they're mainline, but, uh, yeah, there's the there's, 727 900. Right. I just wrote Alaska has an upgraded Boeing that I really liked. I rode the other day. It actually has room. I could, I could uh, cross my legs. But if it's a three, three seats aisle, three seats setup, then, uh, you know, it's really it would be almost impossible to pass a note to somebody in seven A. Uh, right, but people were repeating this credibly. Like it got turned into news, it got cycled into news incredibly fast without any actual documentary evidence except his tweets and people's suppositions. Even though, if you'd stopped as Nick Bilton did, or as you're thinking about it, or as other people did, looking at the photos, like anyone with any journalist should have ta- used uh, their powers of observation and pointed out that right. this was very clearly. Fake, and he was. Pro- I'm actually curious if the guy himself was astonished that people took it as real because he had. There were so many tells. Yeah, I um, think he. I think no, I don't think he was astonished. I think he tried to fake it, and he's. I forget somebody else pointed out that he has a history of this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it really shows you what he thinks of as reality. It's it, you know, it, it's it, you know, I guess it's what makes him good at his job. But it makes me think that you know, like on The Bachelor, there's probably, um, you know, the like the the what's the idea with the bachelor and the bachelorette there's like a hero character on the bachelor who's a guy and on the bachelorette who's a woman and then they present them i don't know a dozen people of the opposite gender to pick from and each week they they kick one out that that the person probably doesn't even kick them out you know that the the show probably tells them who to pick based on you know who's who's the most popular you know that it's probably all you know as contrived as the whole thing would be if it were run on the up and up, it's probably not even run on the up and up. Given- it's true, and this and all you know, film films and TV do that. I think they have to, or they think they have to. Is uh, um, that film that came out several years ago, uh, The King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters, about yeah, uh, yeah, which is a great movie. The Donkey really Kong, the, the 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 competition to uh, score the perfect Donkey Kong game. Yeah, and there and there was a villain. There's a guy Billy who ran a restaurant and and had maybe faked some high scores, but, but probably gotten them. And he used to, was on the cover of Newsweek or something in the '80s. And then this up and coming uh, laid off school teacher who is playing in his in his uh, you know garage and uh, tops of the high school you know high score. So he's the hero. You've got the villain. Well, there was a piece, and I think it was Atlantic after the movie came out by a guy who had been involved in the shooting a bit who said. Well, you know, Billy really isn't the way he was depicted. They kind of emphasize things, but, um, you know, they didn't make stuff up, but they made him into a villain right. because they wanted a goat in the film for people to root against. And, and actually, he's much more nuanced, as everyone is in life. But it's hard to – I think film and TV often remove the nuance because you can't tell a story as well in those mediums without having – I don't know, unless, you know, unless it's a really good <laughs> filmmaker without having uh, – without having – identifiable people to root for and against. I mean, it's part of human nature, but it's also how a lot of films are made. Um, perfectly agree. But I think, you know, that stuff is not going to go away. I think everybody, if you're, you know, watch it, I think you should watch it with a, a giant grain of salt. I do think, I, I think it's, and I do think that's to me is the interesting takeaway from this Elon Gale tweet hoax thing is not just that his tweet thing was a hoax, but what does it tell you about, you know, these reality shows that dominate TV, um, you know, major network TV today. I saw another mm-hmm. tweet a couple of days ago from somebody I don't remember who who uh, uh, who just posited that if you showed 
today's reality shows to someone from 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they would think it was stuff from a dystopian science fiction future. Oh yeah, or they or they might also the yeah they might actually also see it for the false uh, front it presents. Right. There's a bit in uh, it was the man who mistook his wife for a hat, the Oliver Sacks book. I think it's in that book where he talks about being in a ward where there are people who were who had um, aphasia and other people. So one group of people could not understand the meanings of words, but they could hear words literally only. The other could not understand what words meant, but they could hear the emotion behind it. It was two different neurological conditions. And he watched them watching Ronald Reagan deliver speeches, and they were all laughing huh. because Reagan was a perfect melding, in his description at least, of being able to to lie effectively in some combination. But if you could cut out either the meaning <laughs> or the emotional part, it was transparent. And I have that feeling sometimes if you took somebody who hadn't watched TV, you know, and been out of culture, they're often in, um, you know, some remote place, they come back 25 years later, and they watch reality TV and say, why is everyone watching these fake things? These are, these are made for TV movies, right? You're like, no, no, this is supposed to be real. And they'd say, but it's so fake, you know, and we've become conditioned to what we believe reality is supposed to be as portrayed in those, and we accept it more fully as reality. Everything is Worldwide Wrestling Foundation, or whatever it's called. Right. You know, it's all, it's all wrestling. Horrible people. <laughs> and people Acting like horribly. Them. Right. Yeah. I always think back, and the first thought I had when, that, when I saw that tweet, and if you're, I don't know who it was, but if, you know, I apologize for not remembering. Um, that uh, first thing I thought of was that show that was on all the TVs in RoboCop, where it was like <laughs> yes. that yes. that creepy, older, <laughs> nebbishy guy who was always surrounded by like really skanky models, and and no matter what happened, he had that catchphrase: "I'd buy that for a dollar." It's the best. Thing. And you know that dates back to uh, the Cornbluth story, the Marching Morons. Great science fiction story you can find online from the 1950s. The phrase there was, "Would you pay a quarter for that?" It was a it was an homage to that. It's huh. uh, in that story. It's an ad guy convinces the supposedly stupidest people in society to board um, rocket ships that land on the sun, <laughs> that go straight to the sun to get rid of all the excess population of idiots. That's huh. that's kind of a 1950s idea. It's a fascinating story. I also thought of the, uh, uh, the old Stephen King, I think it was a novella. I think it was one of the ones he wrote under a pseudonym, uh, Richard, Richard Bachman. Bachman. Yeah. The, the Running Man, which yeah. they, they turned into a Schwarzenegger movie, but sort of... Crazy film. The, but... the, the novella was a lot less Schwarzenegger-y and yeah. a little bit, but it was really kind of spot on about where TV's going, you know, it, that it's, it is sort of feeding. Now, you know, obviously the, the, the King twist was that they were actually trying to kill the protagonists and that is not going to happen but uh it does i, I watched the season of survivor in which they put people with uh, no clean water supply and brain eating parasites on the island so <laughs> you know nobody died but close right yeah i mean that was a right. scenario people right. they did have a medical crew nearby for the well, anybody true, who but came down with brain eating parasites you know. i mean that's you know you're pushing the limit there a little uh but there, it does sort of feed into you know the 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 sort of dark side of our psyche that that led to you know the Roman Colosseum, right? Where you know yeah, you, yeah. you know as long as you can brand the people as some sort of other, uh, you know, watching them destroy their lives, you can take solace. You know, you, you take pleasure in it. 
right? Well, they're just uh, you know trashy housewives from uh, Beverly Hills. So you know, watching you know one of them uh, you know drink herself into rehab on TV in front of the whole nation, uh, you know, you, somehow you take pleasure in it, or yeah, at least sick, you're supposed to. Sick fascination gets ratings and it gets page views, and we are denying something about ourselves as a like a society or humanity if we if we don't accept that but pandering to it we don't all have to agree to pander to it and i think that's been that divide in culture between highbrow and lowbrow is highbrow is we're not going to pander you all lowbrow people should lift yourself up to our level so that you can appreciate this fine culture that's actually what you should be watching and lowbrow is look we're just enjoying this stuff it's not serious get off your high horse and right. but the but the gap seems to get bigger and bigger for people and people who feel like there's a cultural loss. I mean, people are saying, you know, that you can look at people writing in the 17th century about uh, terrible popular music and entertainment and only the good <laughs> stuff you could find in the salons and those idiots in the streets are, are morons. And it, it, I'm, sure it's, I'm sure you can find it in Roman times and before, like whenever there was culture, there was a divide. But it somehow seems more obvious to us now because it's so exposed. We can all see and find the worst stuff and see exactly how many people are obsessed by and reading the worst stuff, which we used to not be able to. We didn't have to know that as much. I mean, because there were tabloids, people read, you know, the New York Daily News still exists and all those are out there. And that used to be the battle between the New York Times and the tabloid papers. So um, it's just more obvious and more, more, more people we know that we wouldn't think would spread it are passing on this stuff too. So it gets in our face. Well, compared to something like BuzzFeed, even though BuzzFeed occasionally has really good features, they had a really good feature I read about um, a, a young man from... Uh, Utah, who who disappeared in China at the end of his mission, and his family spent has spent the last few years trying to figure out what happened to him. And their best guess, and they really have you know some pretty nothing confirming it, but some pretty good circumstantial evidence that he might have been kidnapped by North Korean secret agents and oh taken to God. North Korea. Uh, Not implausible, sadly. Yeah, at BuzzFeed, you know, which you know it's not their bread and butter, you know, but they're they are paying for some feature writing. Um, yeah, everybody is but compared now, I mean, to uh, compared to most of what BuzzFeed publishes, though, something like the New York Post or the New York Daily News is relatively highbrow today. Yeah, the, it, and the well, the, this is, here's the interesting trend: the long form journalism trend is that a lot of sites that di that do you know they they make it up in uh, in volume. So BuzzFeed, you know, they they're it's the same thing with um, Huffington Post to some extent, or polit you know, I'm argue Politico is different, but you need a uh, uh, Business Insider probably in this camp too, is they need billions of very, very, very low paying page views to have enough money to then afford to do stuff that will get higher ad rates because it's higher quality, but requires more of an investment. And BuzzFeed certainly, uh, they've got this huge war chest of, of private investment, and they certainly have been perfecting the um, the bulk model, and they've been hiring more and more serious journalists at the uh, at the sort of top end of news reporting and long form end, and are doing good work there. Much as I hate to say it, they're doing good work there, and and uh, I think you know Dig actually is producing features now. That's new. Um, like all the sites out there that produce any kind of volume are also now trying to do long form work. Well, let's get back to that. I'm going to take a break right now, though, and do the. Uh talk about our first sponsor and it's our good friends at mail route uh, mail route in short is an easy to implement fully customizable uh, 
front end for your domain's email. It works simply, simply, it's easy, reliable, it's easy, reliable, it's easy and reliable. That's the talking points they want me to hit. Easy, reliable, but it really is. Uh, it's the best solution an IT person can pick for spam and virus filtering. Uh, they filter spam and viruses out of your email and deliver clean mail to your mailbox. More than 90% of all email traffic today is spam and viruses. MailRoute keeps that garbage off your service, off your servers and out of your mailboxes. So your mail servers don't even have to deal with it, right? You just take the 10% of the email that's actually the real stuff. Has a very low, very low false positive rate and reliable uptime. And it's a hosted service in the cloud. It's not hardware that you have to install. It's not software that you have to install and worry if it's compatible uh, with your existing email server. Uh, it's just a service that you point your MX records to, and then the mail gets forwarded on to your existing server. So you don't have to change anything on your mail server's end. You just point your MX records at MailRoute. They do all the filtering. Then the clean mail comes to you. Very, very elegant and graceful solution for a third-party filtering service. Because uh, it could work with any, it could work for any anybody. Uh, it's written and created by email nerds, and their target is the IT pro crowd, right? They have an API, so you can write your own scripts, customize it to your heart's content. Uh, they know that IT pros want to want to have it just the way they want it, so you can manage it with all the stuff you want. You can manage your users through LDAP, Active Directory, or with MailRoute's own custom API. Uh, it's the only email service that they're aware of that has an API like that. Uh, so you can reduce your hardware costs. You can probably cut a lot of uh, their examples. If you go to their website and check them out, a lot of their uh, uh, customers have been able to greatly, greatly reduce the number of email servers they have because the bulk of what they had multiple servers for was just dealing with the vast amount of email that's garbage, just spam and viruses and stuff. Uh, they love admins, and they also love little guys, even if you're a small organization. They have no minimum number of users um, and no maximum number either. Go to mailroute.net slash the talk show to find out more. So anyway, I started the show talking about what the, the, the balls you have up in the air. We only got to the magazine. You're also still writing for speaking of magazines, The the Economist, and talk about you know doing it the right way. Uh, and shooting, you know, for top tier journalism and and analysis, uh, you've got your uh, your podcast, uh, the new disruptors. Is that weekly? You do that every week? Every week, it's uh, it's a tape ahead, so I am it's slightly non perishable. So I sometimes do batches at a time, but just celebrated a year. This is a year of episode. I think I skipped one episode, so I've done fifty fifty episode fifty two is. This week on the anniversary, or uh, when we're recording this, I should say. Congratulations. That's right. Thank you. It's so much fun. Uh, It's just, I love dealing with creative people. Like, I have this background in art, work in journalism. I love collaborating. I mean, my favorite thing is finding people I like to work with and figuring out something to do with them. And so the podcast, like, every week I get to talk to new and interesting people who are just I keep trying to find, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna, but I like people who are excited and happy about what they do. And that that's kind of my Twitter problem, too, is people who are sad sacks, I tend to unfollow. Like, even if they're people I otherwise like, like, I don't want relentless negativity. I don't need relentless positivity either. But um, so the podcast, I find people who have just are just full of this incredible 
creativity and enthusiasm and just engaged with life. And sometimes it's, you know, really off-base stuff. And sometimes it's like, you know, these people are making a book or they, they have a business, and they do whatever, but it's just, it's so much fun. All right. I'm on your Twitter page, Glenn F G with two N's. That's me. Um, it says right now, just on your, your, your profile page, 180,091 tweets. Yeah. It's a little crazy. Isn't it? I've been on for, you know, that's only, uh, 40,000 tweets a year or something. <laughs> I talk to people though. Twitter is not optimized for at mentions. So I will get blocked on Twitter during active things going on. And 95% of what I'm tweeting is not, you know, quote unquote public. It starts with an at sign. So only people following me and the other person see it. So I think of it as having a conversation and Twitter counts that against you. So I'll be going back and forth with someone, you know, quasi publicly, but nobody on my None of my followers see it unless they happen to intersect with that other person. So for some people, I'm being very talky. Um, you know, if, if you and I have a similar graph, then I'm very talky if we're going back and forth. But to everybody else, they don't see it at all unless they've got, you know, configured whatever. So it's weird. So in some ways, I'm really prolific. In other ways, it's like, well, this is my chat tool. This is my public chat thing. So let me ask you this. Uh, with the magazine... You, the magazine is still completely funded by subscriptions. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, well, let's see. The, uh, I have to put a proviso in because we've started doing some work with Medium, uh, medium.com, because uh, they are doing their own experiments with what people are going to pay for for content or look at for content. So they're paying some publishers, including me, to develop some new content that appears exclusively there first. So there's not, it's not this, you know, wonderful giant pot of money they're throwing at me but so some money for the magazine could ostensibly said to be coming from the net after i pay writers for um for that but it's a pretty tiny amount relative to the subscription revenue there's no and there's no advertising in medium which is why it makes it a a reasonable place to work with where i don't have to sort of change the model of what i'm doing or worry about people being irritated by having ads in one place or another sort of another publishing platform i'm trying out and and they're subsidizing that which is kind of cool well, but if they don't have ads, what and they don't charge for access, then where where are they ever going to get money? How is it not just burning burning up a pile of venture capital? Volume, of course. Uh, no, the, <laughs> that's the change bank. Uh, they they well, from what I can tell, it's funny they don't play it too close to the vest, and I think uh, Ev has talked about it in in public a bit too. Is um, they're experimenting now? I mean, this is this is kind of the Twitter model. As Twitter went, what was it five years? before they ever started doing advertising or doing anything right. to do with money. And, you know, these are the same, this is the same folks behind that. Essentially it's, um, it's some of the same folks and they're, they're funding it, I think as a, Hey, we don't know what's going to happen next. Nobody does. This is the time to noodle and we're going to blow some money on, on noodling, but they're trying to noodle on the high end of the spectrum, which is, you know, it's another one of those great for readers things, how it works out for publications and investors, you know, to be determined, but they're uh, paying for content internally. I mean, they made, they made a blogging platform. So this is the thing that's confusing right now is Medium used to be one thing when it launched. It was like a place where people who were invited could use a new, you know, essentially blogging platform that has a really great editor, uh, editing interface to post essays and stuff, right? That was what it launched as. And you had to be invited and, and it was a little rudimentary, but it was very attractive way to write and read. Then it became, well, more people are being invited. Then it became anyone now can go sign up with Twitter or via Twitter 
account, authenticate themselves, and post whatever they want in Medium. And so it's a blogging platform, right? And you can export all your stuff in a format you can bring somewhere else. But it, you know, you don't that you own your words. They have a non-exclusive license, no ads. But now it's expanded. As several months ago, they started hiring editors, and they have uh, they assign out articles. Um, they hired uh, my friend Matt Bores, editorial cartoonist, is uh, their kind of on-staff guy, and he runs all his stuff first there. He's doing original work for them, and he's contracting people like Rich Stevens and Tom Tomorrow and so forth to do original and reprint work on the site. So now they're an editorial operation that's doing cartoons and long-form journalism and other stuff and with editors. And then the third thing is what they're doing with me and a few other publications where they're subsidizing content in the interest of us creating new high quality stuff that meets, you know, good stringent editorial requirements, but they don't have to pay for our editorial operations. They don't have to build them themselves. They're just paying us a fee and we're posting stuff and we're, and we're seeing what happens. So I think it's a great multi-tier experiment and they keep improving the editing experience. Um, you, like I have worked with a lot of content management systems or CMSs over the year. And they're all awful. And Medium is the best CMS I've ever worked with. It's not very flexible in that you're like sort of like Apple, like Medium and Apple have a lot in common. You don't have a lot of choices, but the choices are generally good. If you don't like them, you're stuck but you, you generally like them. So like, remember how Keynote, when it launched, there were very few things you could do in Keynote, but it was hard to make a bad presentation in Keynote, like a truly ugly PowerPoint presentation. The default setting in PowerPoint is ugly and bad. The default setting in Keynote is attractive and reasonable. Right. It's still hard to communicate. You have to work in Keynote to communicate like you do anywhere. So Medium's default is very nicely presented, very straightforward, minimal formatting, and it's a delightful distraction-free place to write as well. So as a writer, I don't like writing in crazy environments. I write in BB Edit mostly. And Medium is the closest thing to writing in kind of a stripped-down editor as you can get. But you can throw images in. You can do limited formatting. So that's kind of their thing is they're, they've built a really great CMS in which the back-end writing and administration is very, very, very close to what the front end is. Like when you switch from editing to publishing, the difference is really tiny and that's kind of awesome. It's very WYSIWYG, it's very direct and that is huge in its own self. And then they're trying all these models to see what gets people to read. And then I assume at some point, you know, they will figure out what it is. Do they put ads on like the decks that are really unobtrusive but effective but don't feel like crazy banner advertising or do they go to a subscription model or do they, I don't know what they do, but I, I I'm glad that they're pouring some real money in because newspapers aren't none of the conventional journalism sources are really experimenting in this radical way with what the future of a reading experience is. I mean, this is almost a natural outgrowth of what Marco's ideas have been with Instapaper and with other read it later services about, you know, what, what do people want to read online? They don't want cruft. They don't want nonsense. And medium is that it's no cruft, no ads and very, very straightforward reading in, in, in every platform. Right. And you're going to lose. Everybody's going to lose if, if your idea is what does everybody want to read online? What can we make that everybody is going to want to read? Because no, you're not going to do it. And if you want to say, well, what is most, what are most people going to want to read? Well, then you're going to end up with some crap like BuzzFeed, right? But what are, what is an untapped or under, under, underserved market? for what some people want to read online, right? That's, and yeah. that's, you know, how about, you know, good stuff? It's right? like, what's what would the New Yorker be like if the New Yorker didn't have its legacy but right. had the same quality of writing? I mean, I don't want to promote Medium as being the New Yorker, but that, you know, right. their 
more on that end of things. And people will pay. The New Yorker has not really ever been a very profitable publication. Yeah, I've heard it was, that. Yeah, on its own it wasn't. And then Condé Nast has subsidized it in different ways for years. I think it actually has made money for a while, um, partly because probably reducing expenses like everybody else. But but I don't. The New Yorker, the New Yorker is not like this great engine. You know, newspapers used to make twenty five to thirty five percent profit. We talked right. about it last time I was on. Yep. Made these huge profit margins. The New Yorker has probably made you know one percent <laughs> profit over its uh, hundred or you know ninety years in existence. So that harkens back to what I was saying in the beginning that like you don't do really great most of the time. Really great journalism. Really interesting stuff that you read is not massively profitable, but it should pay everyone involved. So the New Yorker may not return money to investors, but everyone involved in it gets that reporters get paid well, the staff, the editors, you know, it's what did, what did you say was it's like the heritage of the New Yorker? What did you just say? The, which the, 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 the something about like the, the, yeah, I forget how you said it, but it was perfect. It was the way that the New Yorker has such a great legacy. I don't know. Oh, what, would well, you, what did you say? I don't even know. That's hilarious. <laughs> we'll have to, well, we something to go about to how they build oh. on that and that it exists, you know, and that they're, you know, it, the New Yorker still looks like the New Yorker. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is they are doing what they call digital replica publishing. Right. And this, you know, this gets us into a, a different issue as well. I, you know, I'll, I'll call back to the, you know, is the magazine, uh, you know, so about, you know, 97 or 98% of the funding is or, or of our uh, you know net revenue is coming from subscriptions or it comes from some subscriptions. And, uh, uh, there's we're we're in a very interesting position. I bring up the New Yorker because I, uh, and this gets us into the whole newsstand, Apple newsstand thing. Is that um, the New Yorker and a lot of other pay- publications, because of how newspaper and magazine auditing is done for circulation, they do a digital replica, which is the kind of Adobe or other bloated. Right. Interface, right? And that's, that's again, that's what brought Marco into making the magazine in the first place was 780 megabyte downloads of The New Yorker for an issue on the iPad. And you're like, what the God's name needs 800 megabytes? But they have to produce something that's very similar in form to the print issue to get audited and get the advertising. And that's their model, even though they're selling subscriptions digital only. So uh, in GigaOM a couple months ago, they put this uh, report in which they showed some of the numbers from the audited uh, circulation, the digital replica and, and print circulation of various publications, including, you know, the top ones, New Yorker and and so forth. And it turns out they don't have very many subscriptions. I mean, the New Yorker, I think, has a million print subscriptions and 100,000 digital-only, you know, replica subscriptions. And that's not a lot. And, you know, most of those probably don't come from the newsstand. They come from the New Yorker's website, or they could come from another app. Yeah, mine do, yeah, because I was already a print subscriber. Yeah, and you and you get a free right if you're a print subscriber. A lot of publications you're not going to the newsstand to subscribe. So Apple had started the newsstand conceivably as a way to take some of the really huge amounts of money spent on periodicals, bring it in house there, take their thirty percent cut, and save the periodical industry because they were going to make it easy for people to subscribe. Lost subscribers would come back, marketing would be cheaper, and it would be worth thirty percent because. Apple was handling all of this and it was a much stickier experience and blah, blah, blah. And that's obviously turned out not to be true. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's clear that Apple is not the savior of the book industry or the periodical industry. And it's led to, you know, sort of where they are today with newsstand. The magazine I, I, is, I, is actually one of the more popular publications and we shouldn't newsstand. be on newsstand. And we should and by top, we show up in the top grossing list, sometimes very close to the top. And we should not, if the other publications were doing as well as they should in selling on newsstand as their primary place for their digital subscriptions to be purchased. Hmm. I, I still think 
And I think it, this is one of those like sort of it's meta analysis, but I think it's sort of under represented is um, on the day the original iPad was introduced at that event. Uh, and it, it kind of garnered a, at least in some quarters, especially in the more mainstream. I think that, you know, I certainly got it. I, I really was impressed by the original iPad. And I think a lot of other tech sort of public, or at least like the people who get what Apple does, were very impressed right off the bat. But the collective response in the mainstream media was a sort of meh. It's just yeah, a gi big iPhone. Giant <laughs> I remember. But a big part of that was definitely because leading up to the announcement, when everybody knew it was going to be a tablet, right? There was a, you know, for months in advance, there was Apple's working on a tablet. They're working on a tablet. And then the day, you know, before the event, everybody knew or thought they knew. Everybody was pretty darn sure that what this event was for was for the, you know, this tablet. You know, they were going to introduce a tablet. But part of that was that it was also widely predicted that the tablet was going to um, save the publishing industry, save the newspaper and magazine issue. You know, it was going to do yeah. for newspapers and magazines what the iPod did for music. And right. I know that in hindsight, lots and lots of music executives still say they still think that uh, – you know, they would have been better off without it because, you know, the revenues are still lower than they were at the peak of the CD era. But that, you know, I think rational analysis will tell you that the CD era was an anomaly because they, at you know, right up until, you know, Napster, they were charging people $17, $18 for a hit CD and people were buying them just to get like the two songs that they wanted on it. Oh, well, there's also CDs were repurchasing. Too. Oh, yes, 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 too, yes. Right. So you had that right. bubble right. when people, all people those scratchy LPs were thrown out and they're like, and, I'm getting and this And cassette tapes, remastered. you know, for me, you know, like yeah. I, I'm young enough there, where my original music collection was cassette tapes and I bought, rebought a lot of stuff on CD. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I remember, you know, for me, and this is totally true, I remember thinking this, uh, you know, when I was in college, a, a significant part of my net worth was my CDs. And I didn't have a huge <laughs> CD collection. I had, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 100 to 200. I, I would just estimate I had somewhere between 100 and 200 compact discs. But you could resell them. Right, you could. There were, you know, you, it was a huge thing in the '90s where you, you know you go to a used CD shop, yeah, and you could resell. You could sell them for, you know, roughly ten bucks, you know, give or take, depending on what it was. You know, five to ten bucks if it was in good shape. So if I had a hundred CDs, you know, I could, if I needed the money, I could go and sell them and you know, walk out of the store with like a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars, right? And that was actually yeah. a huge amount of my net worth. I had like I had a, a a a checking account that my parents occasionally put some money into. Um I had a a Mac L C that I, you know, by the time I was, you know, in my third or fourth year of college had greatly de you know, depreciated in value. <laughs> uh and I had my CDs. You know, and I had I got a you know a stereo system to play them on. That's really all I had. That if I really needed money, I, that's the, all I had to to uh, to sell. But I, you know, the thing that was probably worth the most by the time I graduated were the CDs, uh, which is crazy if you think about. It. There's no rational world. You know, in a rational world, a 22 year old who likes to listen to music shouldn't have to have you know two three thousand dollars tied up in their music collection. 
It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that's what they wanted to go back to. But anyway, music executives today will argue, some will argue that Apple, you know, that if it hadn't been for those jerks at Apple, they'd have somehow come up with something that would have kept the, the golden era going. But I think rational people would agree Apple did save them from a, a world where everything had gone free. And this, this is what we're seeing with cable TV, too, is like the cable industry, the thing that freaks them out the most is unbundling because nobody wants all those channels. Nobody wants right. to pay $80 for, you know, 500 channels. They want to pay $20, $30 for like seven channels they watch all the right. time. Right. But anyway, there was this undercurrent. And I mean, it was literally, you know, there were people talking about it before they let us into the event. You know, I was there, you know, the other press people, then that was widely talked about is what are they going to do? You know, I wonder if our... You know, the people who worked for, you know, newspapers and stuff were wondering, you know, is my paper going to get involved with this, whatever. And when, it, you know, the event came and finished without any kind of announcement of anything like it, no mention yeah. of newspaper. I mean, I guess they had the the New York Times app right. was, was demoed at the event. But they were like, we were like, wait, it's an app, though. It's not a thing. Like, it's not a... And, and I think that fueled the mad response to the iPad because these, you know, from people who work at these publications who were hoping that Apple, they, they kind of went into it with this perspective of how's Apple going to save my publication? I'm worried about my job. And the event came and went with no, you know, no word about it. And, and it, I think it fueled that initial poor response to the iPad because right. they were so... You know, and, and it's only natural if, you know, if you're worried about the future of your own job and your own industry, because um, that's, you know, and it still is the case today if you're, you know, somebody who's especially if you're a little bit older and more esta already established and you thought even just a few years ago that, you you know, you had a career for the rest of your working years. Um, it's not just that, you know, you're worried that your publication is going to go under and you'll have to go to some other publication. The worry is that if the industry, you know, shrivels, there, you know, there won't be anybody else to go to. Yeah, it's not, it's not irrational because there's, I mean, this is the problem, you know, the disruption problem is when you have these huge changes in the economy. Um, in the past, I would say pre-digital, there was still the issue of moving atoms around. So even if you figured out a new way to make an atomic thing better, like this process shaves 80% of the cost off, people were still pay used to paying the same. Like you didn't suck all of the money out of the system. What you usually did is you sucked some of the money into a new segment of industry or new companies. The old ones might collapse and you'd have bankruptcies and stuff like that, but all the money didn't go away, right? right. The publishing industry disruption is that because uh, – because of, I think bad decisions and bad ways of thinking in the 1990s that everything should be – that this is that misreading of Stuart Brand. I hear it all the time is Stuart Brand said information wants to be free. He was not – this is that libris versus right. – libra or gratis or libre versus um, freedom of thought, right? Right. Free is in beer versus free is in uh, freedom. Yeah. And so his statement, if you read it more carefully in context, was that – you should be able to have access to information, not that you shouldn't pay for it. I mean, of course, he was he was advocating more availability of of information at no cost, but also the the availability of information in general. And he sold, he was a publisher; he sold information. He wasn't giving it away. So I I don't know why this infected things, but and, and I don't think it was people buying into it. I think the publishing industry simply did not understand the internet and thought it was a fad because they'd gone through video text and whatever. You know, the executives had gone and through AOL. generations. Yeah, like all these things.
things right. they're like, ah, the internet is a lot more people, but it's ultimately there's no money there. No one's going to care and it's going to come and go. So we'll put some time and money into it. There were people with a lot of forethought like uh, Ken Doctor, who's at, I think he's at Knight Ritter. He wrote this book called Newsonomics a few years ago. He was one of the voices in the wilderness, did some smart things, but I think I didn't want to say he was advocating paywalls in the 1990s. You know, it was, and it's not that we should all be paying for all the journalism out there. As a publisher who has a publication where I want you to pay, I understand there are different philosophies and ads can support some of it. But like 95% of the money from advertising locked up in these quasi-local monopoly publishing, you know, in some national publishing markets where the only venue where advertisers could reach people in print were through these very specific ways that had extremely high inflated high profit methods. That got sucked totally out and it wasn't replaced with much, right? Online advertising is a huge industry, but it's so dispersed. It's so spread so thin that even though it's many, like tens of billions of dollars a year now, it didn't go back to the you know previous high margin gatekeepers, but, but advertisers have found much more efficiency, right? So the efficiency um, and the disbursement, the distribution of people's attention at, this, at the same time just sucked so much money out. There's no clear path for how to fund what was funded for, you know, a hundred plus years. Like that journalism can't exist in the same form because the advertising money just simply um, isn't coming back at that intensity per reader. And the subscription model is still developing whether people are willing to pay enough. And I'm, I'm an, the magazine is an ongoing experiment. I don't think of it as a successful business. I'll be honest. It is a very interesting thing for me to do as an entrepreneur, but I think of it as an ongoing experiment in how people read and what they're willing to pay for. And I feel like I'm on the front lines of uh, the cutting edge of understanding that because we're trying to do something very independent that's new that's very much of the internet, born digital, and yet we're looking to this old model of pay us something so you can read it. Right. Um, well, and this this ties this relates right back to what we were talking about earlier in the show, where you know, let's call it clickbait, right? It just mm. empty garbage that has no lasting value but generates lots of traffic. Uh, you know, effectively, you know, newspapers and magazines aren't. Uh, uh, you know, even historically, they're not innocent of that. There's always some fluff, right? There's, you know, I, I like comics. I love, I used to love the comics. I used, when I was a daily newspaper reader, love the comics page. But let's face it, it's not serious. It's not what, when people talk about newspapers as serious institutions, um, you know, the comics page is not it. You know, the New York Times famously, you know, does not have a comics page. Um, you know, there's the society pages, you know, a lot of newspapers have gossip columns, stuff like that. Um, the thing is, because it was all bundled and you had to buy, either you were a subscriber who got the whole thing every day or you bought a single copy every day, you bought the whole thing. And so the fact that expensive investigative journalism, something where you put a team of two reporters to investigate whether the mayor's office uh, has been taking illegal contributions from, you know, the construction company. You know, mm -hmm. the sort of thing that local newspapers are really the only institution that can uncover that sort of thing. The, the sports scores for the high schools. I mean, that was a huge reason that people read newspapers right. at one point. Right. Local uh, papers. Right. And so, you know, there, there might be a lot more people who check the scores on the sports page than who read the, you know, 
the the city hall reporters daily filings but you know it, it was you know it, it was all of a bundle and it wasn't it, it was didn't matter if that city hall reporting cost more than you know paying an intern to to type the uh, high school basketball scores as they came in you know it was just considered part of the institution whereas now with this page view model where you can see what's making the money it, it just it corrupts the whole thing and and steers the institution in the direction of where the page views are coming from. Right. And everything becomes vertical in this market, right? Is that you have the incredibly crass page view acquiring, like lowest common denominator, purient stuff is all one vertical. It's all business insider for business news. It's all uh, Huffington Post for sort of what political gossip. It's all BuzzFeed for just nonsense, right? Or, you know, or even the I can has hamburger or uh, I can has hamburger, which is never, um, was never intended to pretend to be news or anything like that. There are all these verticals for that kind of low common denominator that used to help justify or um, or buoy up the profits. And then there's a vertical for um, comics, right? There are different comic sites. You have all these web comics artists, many of them making part or even a very good living. There's a huge range of people there who they would previously have to be in a paper and syndicated and most of the money would go to the newspaper and the syndicate. They make it directly, right? So you have them too. Then you have this investigative part, like the features part and the investigative part, the sports part, all verticals. The trouble is the long form and investigative part doesn't really pay. Like you can't, so Paul Carr just sold or sort of quasi acquire moved um, uh, NSFW Corp, his publication into Pando Daily. And like, you know, we all have, you and I, and we all have different feelings about Pando Daily and it's kind of in bed with its investors uh, in terms of like writing about companies that funded it and whatever. So there's, that's a whole thing. But NSFW Corp, I subscribe to is a very interesting and good publication. And it was essentially the investigative arm of a newspaper or magazine. They ran these really long, super in-depth features and they paid people fairly well for it. They had a staff. They ran through a million dollars and they could not, I think they had several thousand subscribers by the end, which is nothing in terms of being able to produce the revenue you need for the investors investing in it. You, so that doesn't say that you can't, and you know, what I'm doing, I still have a modest number of subscribers. What I'm doing is sustainable and I'm trying to branch out into different publishing methods as I feel like the newsstand is not, maintain you know being as viable as it was trying to do books and other things but it's that in the past each part would subsidize the other and maybe you would do this incredible investigative piece and you know like newsweek uh, or no time uh, didn't time have the cover story by Stephen brill about medical bills yes yeah so time could have sold i don't know if this is true or not but time could actually have sold a million copies on the newsstand more because this was a big you know this is that kind of thing that gets that much buzz actually used to drive newsstand sales they go back to the presses. They would print more copies. So you could come out with a great newspaper story or a great magazine story and actually recoup some of the expense sometimes by selling more copies. And there's just none of that now. A million or 10 million extra page views might be tens of thousands of dollars. It's not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So there, there's a mismatch now between what used to all be grouped as like one publication and all these different verticals, each of which may not be sustainable separately and maybe they have to get squeezed back together. And that's why I say like Buzzfeed has the high end, the features and stuff they're doing and the lowbrow, which is the million, you know, the billion page view things. They seem to be trying to, to tie those back together, to glue them together, to make both ends work. 
Let's come back to that. I wanted to ask you a few questions about. I want to, a few more questions about the newsstand and magazine. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I'm going to take a break here, do an ad read, but I also absolutely I must do an fu. I must do follow up from last week's show with uh, with uh, Moltz, where uh, I was talking about Apple's bunny suit ad, the one where they torched uh, guy, the guy, the Intel guy in a bunny suit, and I said it was for the G5. Uh, it's not John Syracuse. Uh, very politely corrected me. It was uh, that was from the G three Power Max, the which were so far so old. I, oh I'll put God. the I'll put a link to the ad in the show notes. But it was actually when Apple was still building um, beige beige boxes. It was from nineteen ninety eight. So I guess the 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 candy colored IMAX route, but the equivalent industrial design Power Max weren't yet. It's a really old ad. Had mm -hmm. uh, what's his name? Uh, Dreyfus was the narrator. Uh, let me take a break uh, and tell you about another great return sponsor to the show. Our friends at Igloo. Igloo, you'll remember this. They give you an internet that you'll actually like. You can share content quickly with built-in apps. They've got blogs, calendars, file sharing, forums. Twitter-like microblogs, uh, wikis, right? So if you've ever thought, wouldn't it be great if we had like our group, our team, our company, if we had our own little private Twitter, something where we could just post things like links and little short things, but keep it private. It's, it's just for us. Igloo can give you that. Everything is social. You can comment on any type of uh, any type of comment in that thing. Comment on calendar items. Comment on files that are uploaded. Uh, you can at, at mention each other. You know your coworkers and colleagues, uh, and you can follow content for updates and use tags to group things the way you work. So you can tag, uh, you know, an event and a file and have them grouped together uh, by that tag, even though they're different discrete items. Uh, you can add rooms, like little mini igloos. So if you're in a bigger organization. Uh, you can have a, a, a primary igloo for the whole organization or company and mini igloos for each of the teams that they can work in. It's very easy. The whole thing is drag and drop, uh, and it features re responsive design, so everything looks great on the phone, on tablets, um, or on you know 30-inch cinema displays. Uh, and it looks good, too. They've got beautiful fonts from Typekit. So you've got the Adobe Type Library right at your fingerprints for customizing and designing. They have enterprise-grade security. You can start using it right away. And this is the best thing. I love this. This is such a great this – is, this is the thing about Igloo that I think is fueling their success is their, their pricing model. It's free for use with up to 10 people. And when your Igloo grows, then you pay $12 a person each month. So for big companies, they charge money per person. Uh, but even if you're a huge organization, you can try it for free. Just install it, try it, use it with up to 10 people to see if it's going to suit your needs, if, if it's as good as, as I'm telling you that it really is, for free. So you don't need to get permission. There's nothing, no, no kind of credit card you have to put on file to get started. Just sign up, use it for free, and when you see how good it is, then you can start paying. Where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to igloosoftware.com slash thetalkshow. And that'll let you know you came from uh, this show. igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. Um, so 
let's try to figure out what the hell's going on with uh, with newsstand. I have some ideas. <laughs> so, I guess effectively, newsstand is what a lot of people, it, in terms of a goal, it's what um, what what I think everybody was hoping for the first day the iPad was announced, which is here's our meaning Apple's solution to how publishers can um, take advantage of of this platform, iOS and the iTunes store where people are spending money. Uh, right? I mean, that's the goal. It's Apple's solution to publishers who want to make money from iOS users. Yeah, and they they special cased it. I mean, that's kind of the programmer's explanation, right. right? Is they said, okay, you know, you still have to make an app. We're not making a delivery format for you. We're not like a Kindle where you make a Mobi or, file. And, or we're not like iBooks where you make, a, you know, an EPUB file, right? Yeah. We're more sophisticated. Like we want you to take advantage of this platform. And that was, you know, I think publishers were like, okay, you know, you're giving us a showcase and we have to invest in this anyway. We don't want to just publish EPUBs, doesn't give us control. We want to do new things. So it seemed like a reasonable deal. And they were like, okay, I mean, I think the additional deal was, and, and you know, you linked to um, Marco Carpinen's essay a few months ago, middle October, uh, in iOS 7, the final straw for a newsstand. And, and right. he runs it down. So I won't repeat everything because you should read, that's a great article everyone should read. I took it to heart. But there were like uh, seven, he lists this off, Mr. Seven unique behaviors that publishers were given. In the newsstand initially, and one of them was you could change the cover every issue. You know, you can update your screen captures on iTunes every issue, not just with new dot releases of an app. You had a special place. You know, you could do, there were, you could download the background. There were all these things that you could do that were publication oriented and like, so that people using an iPad or iPhone would look at the newsstand. The newsstand was always front and center. Right, you could move the fake folder somewhere, but you couldn't hide it inside another folder. And it showed little tiny, tiny, tiny icons, which in Retina are not too bad, of the publication. And the covers would change, so you'd know if it was a had, different issue. It had background downloads. Yeah, all this stuff. So, so that was, you could, you know, if your publication was relatively big, I mean, because nothing's worse. Like, let's say, you know, whatever the reason, let's not say whether it's a good idea or bad. But if you're, if each issue is a hundred megabytes, which is not that uncommon. Right. For some publications. And if it's really, truly photographic heavy, maybe it has to be. But either way, nothing is worse than saying, hey, I want to read the new copy of uh, National Geographic. And you tap the thing and it says, wait for download. And if you're out and about out of the house, not on Wi-Fi, you know, you may not even be able to get it. Or if you do, you might risk going over, you know, your data limit. So, so yeah, it was, I think my suspicion So they is, had this thing. So it, if you could download in the background, mm -hmm. that was a huge win. And the only way you could do it was to be a newsstand for a while or until iOS 7. That's right? right. So, I mean, I, you know, based on the way that Apple was talking to book publishers ahead of time, it's clear they talked to tons of periodical publishers, got them started, made sure that people, you know, magazines were on board and, you know, they told them the 30% cut thing, I'm sure. But, but there were plenty of stuff available for the iPad pretty quickly from major magazines and, and newspapers. And I'm sure they listened. Apple does listen. Some people think Apple does not listen to its customers or partners. And it listens. It's just sort of like, you know, you pray to God, he doesn't always say yes, right? He's always listening. That's the theory. Uh, so you pray to Apple and Apple doesn't always say yes. But the newsstand was looked to me like it was a, a bunch of things where they had actually listened, consulted, and come up with something that was intended to benefit both sides. And my take is that it clearly has not worked out for Apple and publishers have clearly 
not walked away from it, but walked back from it in a way that Apple is not getting the kind of return it wants from it because Apple has not, I would say, improved the newsstand. It's made its utility as a specific destination worse. In iOS 7, it's particularly bad. It's sort of ignored. It's kind of like, let's just forget about it. And it's widely complained about. I see it on Twitter. I see it in my email from Daring Fireball readers. Widely complained about that, you you know, is something that you can't hide, you know, that there's an awful lot of people who don't have anything in their newsstand and just, and and are, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say obsessive compulsive, but just, you know, fussy enough you know it's there's nothing wrong with that being fussy and wanting to have your home screens arranged just so right that's sort of the mindset that attracts people to ios in the first place that you care about details so yeah i've got at the end you know my first two home screens are are organized just the way i want them and then pretty much screens two through whatever or three through for whatever are just a junk drawer of apps that i you know search for if i need them um, but I can totally understand the mindset of someone who just wants one or two screens of just the things they use and wants them organized just so. Uh, and it just bothers these people that you can't get rid of that newsstand icon, right? The, I, I see more people talking about why well, I wish I could get rid of newsstand completely than talking about anything that's actually in newsstand, which well, and, is a problem. And that's right? the change. I mean, iOS 7, so part of it is you can hide the newsstand icon now. You can't throw it away. You can't delete right. it like a lot of the apps. But iOS 7 is the newsstand was de-emphasized in importance. You can put it inside another folder. You no longer see the tiny, tiny icons, which have more of a cue for people than I realize. Based on what I hear from readers, they forget because they don't see the tiny icon changes. The brain is an amazing thing. If you subscribe to publications and in iOS 6, you're, every time you fire it up, it's on your home screen or maybe your second screen. But you know, you, you look and you go, oh, that's different. Your brain knows. And even though you can't even make out the detail at, you know, it's a hundred pixels tall. You know it's different and you tap it or there's a blue dot or whatever. I mean, there's some indication. iOS 7, that's gone. So people interested are telling me they don't even notice the issues changed. Right. I mean, I send out iOS 7 notifications as do other publications, but I'm only every other week. People lose sight of it. And then you can hide it entirely, which is everyone's, which is fine. Some people want to do that. Apple wanted them to do that. But it also is that thing of like, de-emphasizing its importance to Apple. The fact that you can hide it is a user request and it's great they're doing it because people who don't want to use it can hide it now. But it also shows that it's not important enough to Apple to irritate people by making it stay on a home screen. Right. So it's a sort of like the converse. Like it, it, it's, it's a problematic design on both ends because if you don't use it, you know, you have to do something to get rid of it and now they've added a feature where you can't. But then if you do... Like if, say, the magazine is one of your favorite apps or if you read the New York Times app, which is a newsstand app, every day, if that's how you start your day every day is reading the New York Times app, you can't, you know, you can't put that app icon on your home screen or in your dock. It, like it has to be. It's crazy. permanently, it's enforced that it's one level deep. In And it's even worse, in my opinion, on iOS because it's such a flat, hot you know conceptually the design is so flat it's, it's like it's really and it's one of the strengths i think it's one of the reasons ios has proven to be so popular with the general public is that there is no hierarchy by default right or i guess there is i guess they do actually put a folder in there's like a, you I, I think they changed at some point when now there is at least one folder like in a brand new factory fresh yeah. you know ios install 
but it's certainly de-emphasized. And, and you know, I, I think that's a strength of iOS because I think hierarchy is a huge problem. Even one level of hierarchy is a huge problem for most people because if they don't see it, it's not there. Yeah, it's, it's right. Out of sight, out of mind is true. And people's attention is very scarce. They have a right. lot of things they can do. And once you start routinely forgetting about something and not being reminded about it, then it's an issue. Now, right. you know, I understand. So I, I should I should point out like this. I don't want to sound like I'm bitching and moaning about like, oh, people aren't subscribing to my publication and cry for me. It's more like I know we're doing good work. I know I, I write for the Economist. I write for other publications. The people contributing are doing good or, you know, write for other publications that people think of as having a high degree of quality. I know what we're doing is good work. And it's always frustrating when you're doing good work and you feel like you can't get an audience. That is a marketing issue that is separate. And that's my own problem, right? But when I feel like uh, the people who, so there's a difference between people who I can't find and don't care about the magazine or unsubscribe because they've lost interest in the content. That is a one category, right? The category that I'm having a problem with is the people who actually like the magazine tell me they like it and they're emailing me to say, you know, I'm unsubscribing because I forget it exists yeah. because in iOS Jeez, 7. Isn't that a frustrating that, problem? So bottom yeah, line, that's a problem. let's just spell it out. Bottom line, if you could flip a switch and turn the magazine from a newsstand app to a non-newsstand app, you would flip that switch. Totally, totally. Yeah, and, you, and that's the thing. And I don't think a lot of people can't. know this. You can't. And yeah. I'll make, that's not to say you forever and ever you won't be able to. But as it stands today, you can't. There is no thing you can go to in iTunes Connect and say, "Take the you know my my app, the the magazine, which is now a newsstand app, and make it a regular app." Even though all the things that you get from newsstand, you could do, you know, like background downloads and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of recoding necessary because there's a couple things that are used in the newsstand as I recollect that you have to, including the background download, there's a different method, which right. I think I can use now too. Marco Arnott was just blogging about this. I mean, Marco said the same thing. He wrote a blog post at marco.org and said, if I was doing it today, I wouldn't put it in the newsstand. And he's and he's right. I don't fault him for it because it made perfect sense at the time, of course, right. and it got a lot of attention being in the newsstand. But you know, um, Marco Carpinen, he wrote in his entry too, he's like, they are a platform, his firm, and they are not recommending using the newsstand. And and I believe that I could actually reformulate the app, resubmit it, but I would lose 100% of the subscribers. Right. Apple does not let you transfer the subscribers. Right. So, I mean, the ideal case for me is that they would let users choose, not enforce this on users. They would let users choose to uh, break open the newsstand and say either don't use the newsstand, put all the apps on my home screens, right. or let me drag stuff out of the newsstand and but still give me the ability to change covers. Like that's the ideal thing is give me the I mean, Apple wanted to give publishers and users that sense of timeliness, that this is something new. The cover changes. That was part of the design. And it's part of the one, I think, a really appealing part of the design, even though, you know, outside of me and The Loop and a few other people, a lot of publishers just take their newsstand subscription, again, because of this digital replica issue, and they slap it on there with type that's in, you know, negative one point size. The, so that's a very appealing thing, being able to show a new cover. Well, but think about this. Um I think even the name newsstand itself shows that the metaphor is a bit broken, right? So yeah, yeah. newsstand it's, is where you go to... Right, but no, but think about it. What is the newsstand? The newsstand is where you go and choose from a whole bunch of things. And mm. most of the stuff on the newsstand is stuff that you've never read. You know, like when you go to a real life newsstand, how many of those, you know, how many of the magazines are ones that you've never even 
looked at a copy of most of them right and there's everything from celebrity gossip to sports to you know world affairs uh, you you what you know a newsstand is something like the store right the newsstand metaphor is should be the 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 something in iTunes where you go to pick a magazine to read, not a place where your magazines, the ones that you've chosen to subscribe to, show up. Right? Mm -hmm. If you in the real world, when you subscribe to uh, two magazines and a daily newspaper, you don't go to the newsstand to get them. They come to your house. Right? They're right there. Like the 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 magazine is stuffed right through the mail slot in your door. It the, should be called the latest or or news or my subscriptions or something like that. You're right. The terminology is exactly that. Right. I, I will say the fa most fascinating thing about the newsstand when you go to the iTunes to see what they're listing there is uh, apparently um, there's a lot of market for scantily clad ta tattooed women in tattoo magazines. I had no <laughs> idea the number, the sheer quantity of different titles in that market that show up among the top grossing uh, newsstand titles is fascinating. I guess it's uh, it's like buying romance novels, like guys want to buy tattoo mags uh, mm. because now they're hidden away. That's the, the other advantage though is the, the, they don't show up on your screen. So if you're trying to buy magazines you're embarrassed about now, mm. they show up in the newsstand and the, the cover is hidden. So that's that's the uh, little brown cover right. for the newsstand. But, uh, you know, I, I just think that in some ways the metaphor, you really, you know, just think about it. Like, you know, when you subscribe to a magazine, a real, you know, paper magazine, they do the most convenient thing that they can possibly think mm -hmm. to do, which mm -hmm. is we will just mail it to you. We'll just put it in the mail, and it will show up. A, a U.S. postal <laughs> carrier will will literally put it through a slot in the door of your house, and, and it'll just be there for you. And newspapers do something just ever so slightly less convenient. But you, you tell a newspaper, here, take my money and give me a copy of your paper newspaper every day. They say, okay. We'll take it from here, and every day, right outside your front door in the morning, there will be there. There it'll be. Just walk right out your front door, and there's your newspaper. It's so on they, your front porch, which right. is your home screen, right? Is that your right. metaphor? Well, they're yeah. just making it the most convenient thing possible. Because and and it's it's they're not bothering you. These these are people. You know, this is what you've asked for. This is only after you've given them money and said, "Do this, drop this off every day." Obviously, if you didn't want the newspaper, and if you you know, like I live in an urban area and there's local newspapers that, you know, that, that'll stuff your, your front door with newspapers you didn't ask for. But that's a different case. I'm saying with these subscriptions through the iTunes store, they should make it as convenient as possible, which to me is exactly what you said. Let it, you put it right on your home screen or even on your dock, the, the, the icons that you see no matter which home screen you're on. Exactly. And I really think that that just wasn't thought through and that the name itself, Newsstand, really shows just how poor, poorly thought through the, the metaphor is. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it made sense at the time, though. It's like every time Apple, because it, it was a browsing thing. When it started, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, here's the stuff you want to read. It was like, here's your portal to the App Store listing of publications and then stuff will show up here. Um, and now it's, you know, now it's something else. This, this ties back to my contention based on the looking at where I know where I am, because I know my numbers and I can look at the top grossing uh, lists in iTunes uh, for, you know, the iPhone and iPad. And I can see where I sit and I can look at those numbers from the audited, you know, digital replica versions. There are people are only subscribing to the digital version. And I can say, 
as we were talking about earlier, that people are subscribing through a website or, you know, the print subscribers can get web stuff for free typically, and that's not counted in the digital only subscriptions and the audited returns. Um, but I can see people are probably subscribing to the website. The Economist is probably not selling most of its subscriptions through newsstand. They're selling them mostly through economist.com and people have multimodal access and Android and whatever. So I guess what that says to me is that Apple didn't provide maybe a compelling enough front end. And as they've lost interest in it, they've backed off more and more because yeah. Apple, I always say this, you know, Apple eats its babies and you may find that abhorrent or you may find it wonderful. It works out really well if it's something you don't care about and they focus their attention more on stuff that works. It's It can be irritating if it's something that you like and you're like, oh, why haven't you made iPhoto actually good after this many years? Like, why have you lost interest in that Apple? I mean, they don't make money off it or it's not important to their core direction anymore. Newsstand... They, they, in Iowa 7 showed to me that it's – for the moment, they're pushing it off to the side. They're not getting rid of it because what most publishers are doing is they're making free apps and the money for that app is coming from outside Apple's system. So Apple gets no benefit except in the desirability of their platform for people downloading and using the New York Times or New, York, New Yorker or People or whatever app there is. Those apps do not generate any return. For, I mean, there shouldn't say no return, but those apps do not generate a substantial return for Apple, probably in the way they conceived of it. Not, they, not enough to to garner their attention. Yeah, it, it's an adjunct. The apps are an adjunct to the entire magazine presence for a magazine, as opposed to the newsstand being the central point through which people then maybe go out and read on the web too, but the, they come in through that way. And, you know, that's, and that's life. So I'm not, you know, I, I hate to sound like I'm bitching about like, like I'm not whining that Apple's lost focus on this. I'm more like, well, damn this. I thought it kind of worked okay. Um, and, and it's not. So, the, I mean, this is part of why I'm going into all these different directions too. I've got a lot of different things going on. But it's, it's also true too, that. that you're not asking a lot of Apple right now. Now, so that, that vague idea that this I talked true. about back in 2010, when, when a lot of people, in newspapers and magazines kind of had this vague notion that Apple's going to unveil some sort of boil the ocean, save the publishing industry thing was sort of thinking, you know, Apple's going to do a lot of work and come up with something, you know, ingenious that's going to, you know, pump infuse, you know, reinfuse money into this industry. That's hoping that Apple does a lot. What you're, what we're talking about here is just a relatively minor amount of attention to what's going on in newsstand, whether it would be putting the work in to allow a newsstand app to go non-newsstand exactly. and keep its subscribers, or something like a, a setting in iOS that would allow a user to say, you know, use newsstand for newsstand apps and then you taught, you know, on off. And if you turn it off, then, and it would say, you know, a little explanatory text, newsstand apps will appear at the root level of your home screen. Exactly. And this is, you know, I hear from, I hear from readers and, I, and again, I don't mean to sound, this is like, a, I, a, I'm not extolling what I do. And you know, it's funny because I always feel like the magazine is something I inherited. Like Marco was my rich old uncle and you know, I mean, this is a, it was a cash deal, right? We know this is a buyout and so forth, but I didn't make the app and I love the app. And so when I talk about it with great affection, I'm talking about Marco's work and I sort of forget I own it sometimes. <laughs> I don't think of myself as an app developer, but I do hear from, I hear from readers regularly who say, you know, I don't really buy into the newsstand. The only periodical app that I have that I really use is the magazine. I don't want the newsstand icon. Can I just drag it out? And I'm like, right. well, if you crack it, you can. So it's, and I hear, but I also hear that I'll see people talking on Twitter about, 
God damn it, I only use the New York Times. I only use whatever. Right. Why can't I just have that? Right. And so the option is now either hide your entire newsstand folder in a subfolder, which then you have to nest into to bring up or double tap to double press to find it if you used it recently. Or, you know, I figured out this workaround, this just stupid workaround. I have a redirect. So you can go to a web page at my site. I put it in the fact even. You bookmark the web page. It's got an icon that you can make as a, you know, a web app on your home screen. So you, you mark it as a bookmark on your home screen. And then when you tap it, it loads the web page, does the redirect to the app and it launches mm. the app. It's stupid, but it works. It gives you an icon on your screen that when you tap it, it launches the app. Right. And a number of people are like, oh, thanks for doing that. But you know, it's like 75 people did that or something, right. but I wanted to let people do it. But it's that, at some level, it's that easy. I realize an Apple's infrastructure allowing us to, as a, a newsstand apps to come out and like, be a regular app, and even if they disabled the cover change feature, maybe that's right. not an option. Like I'm well, sure they there's would, some ugly they would definitely there. they would definitely make make the apps if they did that. They would, you'd whether you'd get to change it every issue or not, I don't know. But you'd have exactly. to sh conform to that shape, that round square shape. Yeah, something would be yeah exactly something would be different because they wouldn't you know Johnny Ive is not going to allow that on the on the screen like a bunch of different right. shapes and not after not after all the changes they made. So so I I completely appreciate and understand that and it's it's not like apple's trying to do anything to anybody me or the new york times it's more like they didn't crack this nut and they're so good at cracking a lot of nuts and this one they didn't crack and so they're they've kind of put it aside and maybe they'll come back to it later uh, well, in the another cycle another thing that's occurred to me and this again is not asking a lot of apple would be perhaps the best idea would be just abandon the newsstand just exactly. you know do an ios 7.2 uh, or, you know, I don't know, you know, we're already in, in uh, you yeah, know, it could be in, we're, we're already in December, eight. so maybe it's an iOS 8 thing, but just say, yeah. you know, just get rid of it. And that's an Apple-like thing to do. Don't even announce it. It's certain, you know, when they get rid of things, you know, they don't talk about it because it's sort of tacitly acknowledging a mistake. Just get rid of it. And when you upgrade to iOS 7.2 or to iOS 8, your newsstand apps are just on your home screen. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the other thing that's interesting. Or if course, you're an existing user, or if you're an existing user, newsstand just becomes a normal folder. If you've got right. an existing installation, and then you can open it up and drag them out and drag them back in, so that it's, you're, it's still organized the way it was before you upgraded. So there's no disorientation of where is what happened to my icon. But just turn it, just turn newsstand into a normal folder. Yeah, I mean, newsstand has the other thing which drives people nuts, which is you can't tap on it to get it to zoom out like you can with any folder. So you, yeah. when you're in newsstand, even if you get there by a circuitous route, like you exit, you know, you tap while you're in a newsstand app, you can't tap on the background and exit the folder and go back up a level, which dry, I've seen so many people right. tweet about how it, it breaks the metaphor. But okay, so here's the thing that newsstand has taught me, though, or I should say this, running a subscription publication has taught me that's separate from newsstand, but sort of tied in is, is um, it's very interesting uh, after having spent like the last 10 years on sort of writing with blogs or daily sites or sites that update all the time, um, having a cycle like this and dealing with subscribers who get fatigued. Like I know people get tired of reading a given site, but it's fascinating to get email from and talk to people who say they kind of ran out of steam. And even when they say, I really like what you're publishing, I just don't have the time to keep up with it. I'm like, we're doing five 
articles of, that are 1,500 to 2,500 words every two weeks. And I'm like, really? Like, and, I'm, and I'm a bad example because I have very little time to read now that I'm an editor. I'm spending all my time editing, uh, working with writers. But uh, there's definitely reader fatigue you get. And that's kind of where the, the one-two punch is that uh, Apple sort of de-emphasizing newsstand makes it a little bit harder to keep existing subscribers, makes it a little bit harder to get new ones to deal with the churn because there's always going to be churn. And so it, it makes the equation a little bit more difficult for me, especially as an independent publisher, because I don't have a website that people are used to going to, even though you can go to the-magazine.org and you can, you, know, you can get a subscription there. You can read all the articles there. It's a full website, has been for a uh, Nine months, and people mostly don't realize that, which is fascinating to me. But we don't have like a, a website that people are used to going to, and this is the iOS adjunct or alternative, where for every other publication just about, they have a website, which is where the traffic's at, and this is you know an upgrade from the mobile version of their site. The app is a better thing to read in. So that's a that's been an interesting thing to wrestle with, too. And I mean, that's why I launched the Kickstarter is we're doing a a book because I need a different modality. I can't have everything be resting on subscriptions because subscriptions, and especially, you know, 95% of it being an Apple side, I have probably 5% of subscribers are coming from the web. So I need to rejigger things so that all the revenue isn't in one pot to make the engine go. <laughs> the I was working towards the Kickstarter. I wasn't going to let it slip. Oh, but I know. No, it's just, but it's funny. It's, it comes you've always, this, you've though. wanted a, a Kickstarter. You had a, what was your Kickstarter before? You had a Kickstarter that, 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 uh, that, that didn't get off the ground. I had an ontological Kickstarter. It was a, it was a Kickstarter campaign to write a book about how to run a Kickstarter campaign. Right. Uh, and, the, it, and the special irony is it didn't fund. But what, you know, what happened is I kind of did everything wrong. I thought I'd studied Kickstarter enough. I'd been writing about it for a couple of years. Uh, it's you know, a good the, thing. It's a good thing then because then your book would have been wrong. Oh, that's right. Yeah. If I'd funded right? it, I don't know what it would have, I don't know what I would have said in the book, but, <laughs> but everything good that I'm doing in my life came out of its failure, which is, you know, that's, that's my lemonade stand is I had lemons of a failed thing. It's like 10 days into the Kickstarter. I'm like, oh, I did this all wrong. People gave me advice. I should have asked more ahead of time. It had funded about 10%. And I'm like, it's not going to fund. So I just canceled it instead of having the ignominy of hitting the end and not reaching the goal and launched the new disruptors and went to the XOXO festival um, in September, 2012, launched the podcast in December of last year, joined Marco at the magazine in October of last year and feel like I now, I know I haven't learned all the secrets, but now I really have a better sense of what, what makes sense to crowdfund, I think. And I, I you know, I think this will be successful. Like we're ha almost halfway there. Here's the deal. Here's the, it's called the magazine. The book, which of course is the obvious title, how to not that. be so, and then parentheses year one. So it's the pretty much it's the best of the first year of the magazine, and you want to do it both as a print and ebook collection. Yeah, that was the thing. As I thought, it didn't. You know, it could do an ebook very easily, right? That doesn't take a lot of time and effort, and it, and it wouldn't actually. It would could be well designed, but you wouldn't get the full benefit because I'd be thinking mostly about people. Uh, reading an EPUB, say, or Moby on a Kindle. So so it would be relatively simplified. So I thought, you know, we should put a stick in the sand. Like, we're an electronic periodical. Why don't we do a hardcover book that's designed like a magazine? So we have the we have the magazine style of design that we don't even do in the app because the app is meant for simple reading. We're going to take advantage of the print medium, and then we'll produce a PDF, an EPUB, and a Moby version of it as well, all without DRM. None of that goddamn DRM. <laughs> you can read it wherever you want to. Put it on every device you own, every computer. Um, but uh, but yeah, I want to do a hardcover book so that it would be something special. And there'd be a reason 
people would be motivated to be part of the Kickstarter because we there was a reason for it. It wasn't like, hey, I can't afford to make an ebook. It's like printing costs a lot of money, so I need to pull together people to to make it happen. When did you announce this? I, it it was. Recent? It was just be, yeah, it was just before Thanksgiving. The time is a little right. off. I was hoping to do it early to be to be done before Thanksgiving, and then everything always takes longer. Oh, but I wanted I to know that you know this feeling, so I oh, went again yeah. this year. So it launched on uh, I remember the exact date. I don't know what date it was. It was two. It was, it was a couple weeks ago. It was on uh, November twenty first, I think, um, the same day that I put out an issue number thirty of the magazine. Okay. So we're we're past a year in the magazine. You right? got a forty eight thousand so dollar goal. Yeah. Right now, as we record, it is at 22,555, so just a hair under 50%. But it was a lot. It was a big push at first. And I thought, uh, just watching it, like the first 24 hours, I thought it was going gangbusters. I still the, think you're going to make it. I think I, th- I, think I am. The, uh, the odds are good. The thing that's interesting, and it's, so some Kickstarters, there's, there's like three typical Kickstarter profiles, like graphs. One is the oh my god, and it goes like zoop, like a straight line up until the end, and that's and like somebody pebble. asked for a hundred thousand dollars to make a a uh, like the the watch to turn your yeah. I, I, your your iPod your little square nano into a watch, and they ask for a hundred grand, and within three days they have two million. Yeah, and those and right, and those build on themselves because there's something appealing. It's it's usually consumer products. There's something super appealing about it, or it's like a Veronica Mars where there's an enormous. They have an audience of tens of millions of people and a tiny fraction of that audience is constantly discovering it and spreading it and coming on. So you have this kind of straight line up or maybe it curves up and then tapers off to like a straight line up. So that's one kind. One is this, um, one is like the does kind of badly, badly, badly. And then suddenly they pull it off and it goes boom to the top near the end. They get a whole bunch of people. Mine is the apparently, and I've heard this now since it launched, I've seen it before is actually much more typical is really huge first day or two. Then you have a nice, gentle climb as you go along, you cross 50% and then a nice huge spike at the end in the last couple of days. And that's right. what, and, and so the, the statistics, the, pe- that, that third one is that this is why daddy drinks curve. Exactly. My <laughs> God. I know that's, and you're like, so in my case, 48 grand, we raised $16,000 in 24 hours. Boom. And at 24 hours, it immediately tapered off because people saw like, Oh, it's going to happen. Hit 33%. They're fine. I mean, literally at that moment, 24 hours, it went to that slower taper. And then so in, you know, in the first day was 16 grand, the next 10 day or next uh, 14 days, I'm sorry, has been, or 13 days has been uh, about six or $7,000, which is much slower. I have so many people are like, oh, I'm going to come in. Just remind me before it's over. I'm like, all right, all right. You know, you had a stat, but, you tweeted the other day that was something like, uh, it was like the percentage, once you hit 50%. Oh, yeah. Up. Your odds are pretty good. It was like 90% or something? People, Yeah, people have done this great crunching, and there's these charts you can look at like for different projects of different <coughs> values. So for zero to $50,000, there's one range for you know whatever. So you can look at this thing, and you can say, okay, where am I at? And once you hit the, – the, the, the sweet spot is once you've got half of your goal. So for me, that's $24,000 to $48,000. And you're a $50,000 or less project. Statistically, once you reach half the goal, you are 97% likely or 97% of projects that reach half the goal go on to at least fund 100%, if not more. So that's a great stat. The thing about Kickstarter that's fascinating is it's, it's 40% or it's a, a, a 56% failure. 56% of projects do not fund. But of those 56%, about a third get no pledges at all. Somebody mm. posts it and they do not tell anyone about it. No one does it. Another third of the failed ones get like less than 20% of the funding. So there's this very narrow band where people get between 
20 to 50% of the funding and they can't get all the way there. But once you hit that sort of magic middle point, it shows enough momentum that it's just a question of time and that curve. Most Kickstarter projects, the average project, when you take out the outliers like Pebble or Glyph or the ones that super fund, uh, Elevation Dock, um, most fund at about 105% to 110% of the goal because people come and they meet it and they meet it at the end. They're like, oh, they need, I'll raise my pledge $10 to make it happen or whatever. Right. So it's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a finely tuned art, but I'm feeling happy about it. And, you know, so I should come back. The, the reason I did it though is like, I like the stories we tell, right? This is the whole thing. Like it's, this isn't a money-making endeavor. In I the was sense about that, to say, cause yeah. you kind of, yeah, I was going to come back to that. You kind of hinted at that a few minutes ago where you somehow, you know, we're bringing it up as a money-making event. And I was going to, I was going to tell you, you know, that's, not that it's a bad idea to do but this book. I think it's a great idea. I think looking at it as a money-making idea is not a good idea. Oh, yeah. No, I mean the diversification of the magazine from being only a subscription-based periodical to being something that produces content in lots of different ways. Right. That's the, that's the money-making idea. That's the, I need revenue. I want newsstand now is, you know, 95, 92% of the revenue that comes in is directly from Apple. Right. With I, their thirty percent cut, and I'd I, like that to be twenty-five to thirty percent in a year. All right, can I tell? You, can I just put on my consulting hat here? And yeah, gonna, absolutely. For free, I'm not going to charge you. Oh, anything. good, excellent. All right, excellent. But I am going to uh, tell you how to make more money from the magazine. Oh, good, excellent. I want to hear this. All right, you're, what you do is you sell one sponsorship slot per issue, and there's a nice one full page ad from that issue's sponsor. Boom! There you go. That's, that, would, you know, that, that would have cost that 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 would have cost like fifty thousand dollars in consulting fees if you had to come on my show. I appreciate but that. Have it's you? A, I mean, surely <laughs> you've thought about putting advertising in the magazine. Yeah, I don't have an objection. So I guess I have a structural objection as opposed to, say, an ethical one. So there's there's a mission thing, which is that it's been sold as something that has no ads. And so if yeah, it changes... Has it, though? Is that really it has, true? Oh, it's, oh, yeah. From day one, Marco's pushed that out. I pushed that out. Well, is the idea is there's no cruft and there's no... Ads and well, I don't know. I I think you can. I think you could renege on that. Well, no, I, I absolutely could, but it takes. There's a threshold to overcome to say like, right. okay, we said that. Now we're doing this other thing. All you subscribers. So I don't. I'm not. I'm not um, conscientiously opposed to advertising if it works, and especially that kind of model, the sponsorship model. Like this is why I like the podcasting model is that yes, you have ads on a, on a podcast, but it's much more in the mode of this cooperative thing. It doesn't feel like advertising in the same way that horrible flashy banner ads feel like. And I right? really think that the listening experience bears that out, where when you listen to terrestrial radio, even oh. on FM, it does seem to me like there's too many ad breaks. And when you listen to AM radio, if you ever listen to like, just, you know, like just for shits and giggles, like listen to the Rush Limbaugh show, there are so many ad breaks. It is ridiculous. The only show that I know of that it doesn't have that problem is the Howard Stern show, which does f far fewer breaks, but does really long breaks, like where they put all the ads into one stretch in the hour. And uh, it shows people listen to podcasts ads because they don't feel like ads. And so I could see doing, I love, I, I love how that works and people respond to it. So having a sponsor for the magazine where it's like one quality thing, it's like, this is a roadblock and so-and-so is sponsoring this issue. Here's an advertisement and we're going to send you one email or God knows what we're going to do. That doesn't seem antithetical. The problem I have structurally though, is that subscribers are worth a ton of money as a subscriber and advertising typically uh, to reach the audience of the scale that I have, there's not enough money in the ad side to make that worthwhile. 
See, I um, think what you've, I think the problem is convincing advertisers that it's not like buying an ad in another magazine. That, you know, well, that's and exactly it. You know, well, it's I did the math. If you go to, I put this up. It's a, a my website at uh, glog.glenf.com. I did the math a few weeks ago because people kept asking me about why I don't have you know ads in the magazine. And I said if it was the conventional model, I would probably need as many as twenty million page views a month. Nope. To, to equal, no, no I'm not saying your math no, is wrong. I'm saying, oh, no, nope, saying that you know that's not. But I mean, work. that's right. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I've got like we've we've done, you know we've done a lot of articles. We have 150 articles. I'm not going to get. There's no universe in which I can do that, right? To get 20 million. So right. So with the with the current rates that are paid, with the yield, with selling inventory, and that doesn't even include you know includes commissions to add people, but that doesn't include me having an ad staff. I have to outsource it. So I need 20 million page views, let's say roughly, to reach what I'm getting from subscribers paying. That's really hard, but one sponsor who is a supplement to who makes the thing possible that's the extra revenue necessary to make the thing grow or whatever that's a different equation someone might be willing to pay a sizable amount of money to be exclusive and to reach them people in a tasteful way and that's again the podcast model that's why it's valuable here and it could be valuable there but let me do my third sponsor and it's again an old friend of the show longtime sponsor uh an event apart An Event Apart uh, is an intensely educational two-day learning session, a great conference for people who make websites. Um, And instead of being like a a once-a-year thing where you have to, you know, put it on your schedule, book travel and stuff like that, they effectively come to you. They've got events next year in 2014 around North America. They're in uh, San Francisco. That's this month. Atlanta, Seattle, Boston, San Diego, Washington, D.C. And I think that's just like the first half of the year. Uh, You know, almost a monthly event. Go to their website, find an event near you, and you will not be disappointed. Now, an event apart was founded by uh, Eric Meyer, who I think easily, you could say, knows more about CSS than than anybody walking the face of the earth. And Jeffrey Zeldman, longtime friend of the show, uh, and and one of the great proponents of web standards. And the whole thing is dedicated to the proposition that the creators of great web experiences deserve a great learning experience. These guys have one of the best speaker lineups of any conference I've ever seen. If you build websites and you've not been to an event apart, uh, you're really missing out. And if you have been to an event apart, you don't even have to listen to me because you know how good it was. And I'm sure you want to go back. Uh, I've said it before too. They even have great swag, even just the stuff they give you the bad name badges. Uh, last time I was at one, it, it got custom, a custom version of field notes. Uh, just a great conference. Where do you go to find out more? Go to an event slash talk show. No the, just slash talk show. They'll know you came from the show. Uh, I cannot recommend this conference highly enough. Go there, check the schedule, find one coming near you, and uh, and you will not be disappointed. I've I've this has been an obsession of mine. It re- I mean, and it's it's not like a side obsession. I mean, it really is. I mean, I'm I'm I run a business or two businesses if you count the show <laughs> as a separate thing where it's you know. It's part of that. I mean, I make my income. I support my family on advertising. Right. Uh, but I've been obsessed with it all the way from before it, what I was doing was successful, you know, before I knew whether it could work. But, you know, uh, 
I, I, I'm obsessed with it. And I think it's so interesting. There's that, I don't know. I mean, who knows if Einstein even came up with it, but that, that quote that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that's the thing that drives me nuts about the, the print as print publications yeah. move to the web and lose money is, is they still keep trying to sell ads in a way that they've shown over and over and over again, don't support the publication. Uh, and why keep doing that? You know, and it just seems, and and maybe I, you know, I'm I'm underestimating how long it takes for a new medium to settle into our society. You know, and that to me, the web is this old thing, and it's established, and it's you know clearly here to stay. Um, uh, whereas, you know, it, what is it really? How old is it really? What like 17 years old, 18 years old? In term, not in terms of when the first website went up, but when like Netscape appeared, you know, 1995, 96. Maybe, you know, TV 16, 17 years after the first TV sets were sold still didn't know how to do advertising the right way. I don't know. But it's just as frustrating to me because it's it, it's just crazy that they just keep doing it the same way, you know? And it's eventually you figure out what it is you have to sell. And what did print publications have to sell? They could sell space on paper, including an entire page at a time. They were monopoly. They, they was the only efficient way to reach the audience in a locality well, or at a national level, and advertisers knew that. But what was the actual format? What they had to sell was space mm -hmm. on printed pages, right? Mm -hmm. And it's still what they have. What does TV have to sell? They have time, right? They can sell the whole screen at a time, 30 seconds. You know, the, the, the fact that it, you know, we ended up with these 30-second spots instead of you know, 60 second spots or whatever. It doesn't really matter, but what they're selling is time. That's the same thing radio had. Um, <clears throat> and what do they have in the web? And, and the web I think has spent its entire time trying to uh, replicate the print idea that you're selling space on a page. And it's, it's, it's a disaster. Right. And it's just never made sense to me because what can you do in a magazine? Every ma I've said this before. I know I've said this on the show before, but every magazine I read, what turn it around on what's on the front, a cover. And what's on the cover is something that's obviously supposed to capture your interest or intrigue you in some way. And what's on the back? What's on the back <laughs> is a full page ad. Right. Right. And the better the magazine, the better the ad usually. Yeah. Right. It's usually something from, you know, here's, here's the new issue of the New Yorker just showed up in my house today. It's, it's an ad for, uh, Breguet, Breguet, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it a watch watches. company? Yeah, exactly. like Swiss watches or Apple or a right. high-end fashion right. thing? I'm right. guessing that this watch on the back of the New Yorker, I would I, I, I would guess that this is probably like a ten or $15,000 watch. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, or Cadillac or BMW or something like that. And what do you get in the first few pages of the magazine? You get full-page ads, mm -hmm. two-page spreads, these valuable things. Is it a, is it inconvenient to you as the magazine reader? No, because uh, you know, in a lot of the magazines, there are things that I like. I don't. I'm not going to buy that fifteen thousand dollar wristwatch, but I like looking at it. I like to see. I know. I like to look at the ad and see what the hell does a fifteen thousand dollar wristwatch mm -hmm. look like. Uh, <laughs> and if I don't, if I'm not interested at all in the ad, it's a second to flip past it to the next page. Uh, the web, it, it just doesn't work like that. And all they do uh, traditionally is sell these little two inch by three inch or long things. And they just booger up the web page, like the back of the magazine, right? Like the last few pages where they'll, yeah, we'll take your 50 bucks and put a little, you know, a little ad alongside the article. There is no 
thing that's the equivalent of a full-page ad on the web. So just get over it. What do you really have? What are we down to? The thing that the web and the internet in general has to sell is attention. And the only way to sort of make that attention, to sell it in a premium way, is to sell less of it. Yes, I mean, but it means that you have to be producing something of such high quality that people right. discriminate. I mean, it's a socioeconomic thing in part. Is that is the New Yorker can sell its ads for a lot of money because its demographics are so good, and the advertisers have seen that that watch ad on the back sells you know millions of dollars of watches or whatever it sells, hundreds of thousands of dollars of watches, or it's part of an overall high end branding campaign that lets the watch be sold for fifteen thousand dollars because it appears on the back of the New Yorker. They get the cachet of that too, but it's it's the the I think sites reveal way too much about themselves. Like you go to sites, I don't even want to pinpoint any, but like sites you would formally think of as in the real world, they were terrific publications with integrity, and they're running remainder ads that I know are bringing them in fifty cents or less per thousand views. They're running these things at the bottom that show these terrible read these other articles that are spam or they're selling you know uh, some kind of juju berry thing or whatever and i'm like where does that get you that you made that extra you know tenth of a cent on that page it doesn't get you anywhere that's I what don't it comes know. to but uh, so wait, there's one point that i want to make though which is that um uh that the kickstarter so i'm actually using the kickstarter in what I think is the right way for someone like me to use a Kickstarter, which is probably most Kickstarters, which is the $48,000. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to reveal my own salary, but like the magazine is, it does well and I pay the writers well, but it's not how I make my living. It's part of it. You know, it's still, in, it's still kind of a startup. It's an experiment and I love it, but I make my living from a variety of things and I put most of my time in the magazine, but it's not where you know, where I'm making my living from entirely. So uh, it's not like, this isn't a disclaimer about like pledge 48 grand and I get 40 of the thousand of it, but I'm really using the Kickstarter the way that is very useful when you really just need some capital and you want to give people uh, a incentive to do it because they like what you're doing, but also you're giving them the reward is actually the thing you're making as a result of raising the money. So the book, you buy a book in the Kickstarter, you get a book. That's great. But I had a threshold to hit. So 48 grand, that was in all my budgeting, that gets me more copies to print, of course, that I'm going to fulfill. I don't wind up with really any money at the end. There's a little bit of margin of error. You end up with a, a garage full of books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I've got a printer, so it's great. So so the goal is really, I want to sell about 1,500 books roughly reaches the goal and 1500 hardcover books. And it could be some mix. You know, a lot of people could buy eBooks or buy some of the higher level rewards. That's fine. But roughly 1500 books. And I'm going to print about 2000 books. So I don't make really any money. All the writers get paid again. They get reprint fees, the designer, the printer, everybody gets paid. And I wind up with books. That's the outcome. And then I have to sell, I can sell any number of eBooks after it's done. And a hundred percent of the cost has been paid for. And I can sell, you know, say 500 print books or even do another run if those sell over the next year. And that's where it actually benefits the bottom line is, is the Kickstarter helps me come up with the capital that's very high to do this right. And to do something that I think is worth people's time and attention. And then my reward for myself personally is I have more stuff I can sell that's been paid for in the process of producing this thing for them as the result. That's that my sounds math, good at least. All right. I can't let this close, though, without talking about these, to me, very creepy high-end pledge levels. Now, there's there's three there's two things here. You got four of these. You've got a five thousand dollar pledge level. You get a Lex Friedman visit, and he comes and and gives you a, a shave and uh, 
I don't know, speaks He'll, in front of a group he's snug, or something. He, he gets into a snuggie with you and shows you sutra positions from You've his book. Chris Higgins, same deal, five grand. He'll visit you anywhere in continental U.S. And again, with the continental U.S., uh, what if, you know, if I, if somebody lived in Hawaii, I know that it's a, you know, more of a flight, but Hey, Hawaii is beautiful. It's true. I can well, see, I can, can see, negotiate. I can see an escape, you know, clause for Alaska. We can uh, negotiate. We can negotiate. People want to, if you want to send them to Hawaii, they should talk right. to me. So Chris Higgins, Chris will go to uh, frequent contributor to the magazine, just like, uh, Lex, he'll, he'll come. Uh, and then there's a Jason Snell visit, but the Jason Snell visit <laughs> is... Five thousand and one. This is a grudge visit. This is a grudge visit. So now that I launched the Kickstarter and, and Lex and Chris were up there, and Jason's like, "Why am I not there?" I'm like, "Well, I do. I, you know, it's sort of fun, and it was, you know, I thought it'd be f- people. People react very strongly to Lex and Chris's pieces, and they've done they've done a ton. Of, they're the two biggest contributors, of course, the history of the magazine. So I thought it'd be fun, and I asked them, and they were game to do it. If somebody wants them to come, it's fun. They'll come and give a talk. They'll buy the people dinner. Yeah, they'll but teach what's the with magic the five thousand and one? So Jason's like. I'll do it. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, what do you do? And he's like, I'll come. We'll tape it. He said, I'll come and we'll t- I'll buy people dinner and I'll tape it incomparable with them. I'm like, that's great. And he said, but I have to be a dollar more than Lex. And I said, done, <laughs> done. All right. And then here's the other thing. Then you you people could buy a visit from you, and yours is eight thousand dollars. Now, how can you <laughs> charge more than these guys who are doing this nice thing for you? I have this dear friend, a dear friend, who's given me great advice uh, about uh, uh, the stru- structural things to do with promoting stuff. And uh, she said, you can't, you're the editor. You cannot list yourself as $5,000. These guys are writers and they're perfectly wonderful, but you really, you're the editor of the thing. You should put yourself in more. I'm like, no. And she's like, make yourself $10,000. And I said, no, that's ridiculous. I said, eight, I can do 8,000. But I thought, I thought I will take her advice because, uh, and you know, what's what serious at some level is, um, you know, if you've ever priced out getting people for speakers bureaus, it is crazy the amount of money people Charge. And what I'm hoping is, I mean, to, to be actually serious, the only reason I list these, I, actually, they're they're quasi-serious. They come with books, you know, and send them people books, and it, it'll cover all the costs of someone coming. But it's the idea of, like, if you like the idea of this and you want someone, you want to both support the publication and, and help the thing happen, which there's, I've got some great patrons. Or if do. you've already got, like, an event scheduled. Exactly. This is a booking fee. And so if right. you have a group that wants to, to raise some money, I actually took this partly from Amanda Palmer because uh, I know it's sort of funny, but it's true, is she does house concerts. And I thought of this as, like, this is the house concert equivalent of, of being a writer or speaker or whatever. And she sold, I can't remember how many in her million-dollar-plus campaign and is still fulfilling them like two years in and, and the pictures are crazy it's like you can have a rock star come to your house and snuggle with you as part of the her deal more or less can, and, I, tell, um, can I tell you I've, I've met Amanda uh, yeah yeah and uh, I don't know she's a great artist and her success is uh, completely justified no surprise Again, I I would pay five thousand dollars not to have a house concert. <laughs> I know how to have someone come to your house, but right. her deal was not because said, of, not because of her music. I would I would not like I wouldn't want Bob Dylan to perform in my house. I should point out these visits in my ca- in campaign. They will not stay with you. They're, it covers hotel for them to stay. Somewhere. They don't you have to what? stay. Now you know that story. I forget. It's actually based on a true story. Uh, P. T. Anderson made it into a film, Punch Drunk Love, uh, yeah. a really great movie. But it was about a guy. in the movie's played by Adam Sandler, but he's not, it's absolutely not an Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, I yeah. recommend this movie totally. But the idea was that uh, there were these uh, 89 cent cans of like Dinty Moore soup 
that you bought them. And on the back of the can of soup was uh, like a, a thousand miles on American Airlines. Oh. And he figured out that, uh, you know, that the miles, if you just compute what's the miles roughly worth, were worth way more than uh, 89 cents. So he just bought literally thousands of dollars, thousands and thousands of dollars and thousands and thousands of cans of soup and cut all these coupons out and ended up with, uh, I, you know, uh, like, like a million miles. Right. Like crazy, he's like, right? he's, you know, he became like the most, you know, mild customer on American oh Airlines. Uh, my mind works the same way where I often try to, uh, <laughs> see the loopholes. And I got to tell you, I know for a fact, because part of this is you get taken out to dinner. Yeah. I could rack up more than $5,000 on a dinner. It it is true. It is true. I am I'm slightly concerned that someone will push the olive. We did not set a limit. However, we hope that the people who would pay five thousand dollars would would do it. But oh, but the, the Amanda Palmer I thing. Could just, easily, it, I could easily rack up more than five thousand dollars on a day. Because she was doing house concerts, she said a lot of her things were like fifty people got together and put a hundred dollars into the kitty and they got Amanda Palmer to come and swim with her, them and snuggle in the closet and perform and whatever. And I mean that's you know, hey, that's worth a hundred bucks. All right. Uh I won't. St- I don't know if I will snuggle for eight thousand dollars. It might cost more, but I'm not Amanda Palmer either, so I may not be in that camp. Oh, <laughs> uh, we should wrap up. We've been on for a while, but it's been a great show. We know I was going to talk to you about Bitcoin, but God Almighty, I have to have you back for another show because we've we've expended the whole thing on ads and publications. I, I will come back and blow you. I, I think I understand. You had a great piece. I'm going to link to it. I will link it up. I've, it's in the queue for Daring Fireball, so it'll be through there. But okay, you have a great the, piece in The Economist. This is uh, a – yeah, this is a – I don't want to get – we're not going to talk okay, about it because we've okay, run out of time. But, but. It's, I, I think I actually understand how it works technically. I still don't get the currency side. But we'll talk about it. I'll talk yeah. about it. It's fascinating though, right? Even it's if you're – beautiful. You know, it's right? ridiculously elegant and clever at every right. level and every level is insane at the same time. Right. Uh, I wanted to mention this. This is sort of off topic. I, I don't work it in naturally, but I can't. But um, when you were talking about the uh, the history of the New Yorker, right? And I guess it, I'll tie it in as a wrap up of the show of of why it's worth having a publication that that can stand the test of time and build its own legacy. Um, so the new issue, the December 9th issue of uh, the New Yorker, came to my house today, and on the cover, it's a lovely cover by. Uh, his, his name is Istvan Banyai. Oh, I love his work. And uh, it is a picture of McSorley's Old Ale House, established 1859. And uh, it's mostly monochrome, but there's a little Christmas to it, and including a Merry Christmas in the window and a, a present on the ground, a snow-filled street in, I think, lower Manhattan. And there's a guy out front playing a, a, a trumpet and... Uh, a cute waitress inside. Now, the thing that caught my eye about this, and and I, you know, most of the, I've subscribed. This the New Yorker comes every week, and I've got like a big stack. I mean, literally, you know, like knee deep in my office of unread issues. I, I can't keep up with it. I love so I love the New Yorker. Can't keep up with it every week. But I happen to know this because my friend Scott Simpson recommended this book to me yeah. a while ago. It's a book called Up in the Old Hotel by James Joseph Mitchell. You ever heard of Joseph Mitchell? Yes. Yeah. Joseph Mitchell was a staff writer at the New Yorker. I think maybe when it was founded. If not, he was one of the early hires. He started in 1939, 
and was for a few decades was one of the top contributors. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a collection of his work in The New Yorker. It is a wonderful book. And the kind of stories he used to write were just like, you know, just man on the street stories about the regular citizens of New York. And he was one, I mean, it's, it's one of the best books I've ever read. And it was a really great recommendation. I can't recommend it highly enough. Up in the old hotel. Um, and the first story in the, in this book by Joseph Mitchell is uh, the old house at home. And it's a profile of, McSorley's old alehouse. Oh my gosh! Now this was written. Let me see. I have the book in front of me here. When was that written? I don't know if they give you the year. Maybe it's at the end. Hold on. It's a twenty. And this is also about long form stuff. And it's just a story about the saloon and who owns it and what it's like inside. I think it was written in like 1939 or something. No, 19. I just found 1943. 1943. Yeah. 1940. No, 1940. Oh, it okay. says in the book at least. So it's here's a story about this. Uh, Old Ale House that was established in 1859, the oldest uh, pub in uh, New York City. Um, continuously open, I believe, since 1859. Wow. Uh, and it was oh. one of the most famous, you know, a great, uh, 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 historically notable profile that the New Yorker ran. But they ran it uh, 70, what's that, 73 years ago. And now here's the cover story, and it's, you know, a picture of it. Oh and I think gosh. that's so great. And I don't know how many readers uh, of The New Yorker are going to know that. But like, when, as soon as I saw it, it was like, to me, it was like, boom. Like, that's awesome. The, there's a great follow-up, too, which I just found the blog post at thenewyorker.com about it. And, it, um, and Isfan did uh, some additional cartoons for the site. And it's a slideshow showing Winnie the Pooh wandering in. <laughs> oh, yeah? I don't know. Have you ever seen Winnie the Pooh smoking a cigarette? Well, now you can. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about Joseph Mitchell is uh, now this in the, this is the foreword to the book, and it's written by David Remnick, the current editor of the New Yorker. Uh, Joe Gould's secret is uh, is this I'm quoting from his his David Remnick's introduction. Joe Gould's secret is Mitchell's masterpiece. That's the last piece in the book. It is also, of course, his last piece. He never oh. published again. For the next 31 years and six months, Mitchell came to work almost every day oh and submitted God. not even a story for the talk of the town. No one was more esteemed by the staff than this courtly, soft-spoken genius, and no one but a fool would ask about his silence. There were theories about what might have hindered him. Some great personal sadness, the weight of reputation, the radical changes in New York. Uh, he admitted when he was in his 80s, I can't seem to get anything finished anymore. The hideous state the world is in just defeats the kind of writing I used to do. Oh my gosh. So he, but that's the sort of, but it, he remained a staff writer, full time employed, and came to work five days a week for 31 years and six months and never wrote, never wrote another piece. That is, there's something, wow, that's almost, um, it's an incredible self abnegation about that. You know, that was Tom Lehrer's comment about why after being one of the most successful political, you know, humorists in America for years and years and, and uh, that he gave it up. I mean, he was a math professor. That was his full-time job, right? But he gave it up as he said, after Henry Kissinger won the Nobel or was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> political satire became obsolete. <laughs> Something of that nature. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of it. Interesting. I just thought that was so fascinating. Oh, I think it's so great that they uh, would call back to that.
Anyway, is, is, I, I wish is, that, that, is that your plan for Daring Fireball? It's just going to be a blank page for the next 31 years. Every day people will get up and look at the page and there'll be nothing there. That's probably how it'll end. <laughs> Not with a whimper, but with a hash bang. Right. Sorry. Probably is how it'll end. People just keep coming back hoping for something new. <laughs> All right, Glenn. Thanks a lot. Everybody, check out the Kickstarter for uh, the magazine, the book. Uh, and then check the show notes and, and read Glenn's piece on uh, Bitcoin and Glenn's various bylines and 37 <laughs> different weekly publications. I try. Thank you, John. All right. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks. Appreciate it.